You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get started. With this week's episode uh, featuring a former Green Beret, one who now holds a very important title, uh, curating one of the most important foundations uh, that is going on in America. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. Our normal announcements, as always, please continue to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Starting to get a little more momentum there. Appreciate you guys doing so Uh, as well. I want to remind you guys uh, to use our Amazon promotion on our website. Go to hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. I'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations featured here on the show, like the one you'll hear today, uh, which I think is an incredibly worthy cause to donate to as well. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews. Uh, if you guys uh, can go to Apple and leave a review for the podcast, it'll help grow the show, uh, put it in front of more people. We'll continue to get these stories heard all over the place, wherever you get your podcast. Continue to leave us a review. Five stars. Tell us why you love the show. Finally, uh, we have some stickers again. I got stickers in and I will send them out to you guys. So if you guys just hit me up uh, and you're fo- on social media and you're following us on social media on all the, all three sites, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, I'll be sure to send you a uh, hazard ground sticker, a little swag on the way coming for you guys. So we certainly appreciate uh, all the love and support. Um, this week's guest uh, is, if anything, I am I am persistent with this week's guest. I've sought him out for a while uh, and found out what, what he was doing and then read about his background. Uh, it certainly is somebody that I, I think you guys are going to enjoy hearing from. Retired Green Beret, retired Army Master Sergeant. And he spent over 20 years uh, in the military, had, had over 10 deployments to the Balkans and Iraq. He's got a blonde star with Valor device, and he currently is the chief of operations for the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. And he is Daryl Ut joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Daryl, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's great to be on Hazard Ground, man. You got a great podcast, and I'm I'm honored and privileged to be here with thank you guys. You, thank you, thank you. I, I kind of left some things out of your. Uh, bio as well. You were actually nominated uh, or you won the award, the Major General Robert T. Frederick Top Operator Award in 2006. That's for a uh, Green Beret 18 Series Special Forces non-commissioned officer whose duty had a significant impact on the Special Forces community in the last year. Uh, the Larry Thorne Award in 2006. Um, and so, you know, you have had a long distinguished career inside the Green Berets. You also worked at the Special Warfare Center and School uh, in North Carolina, training other Green Berets. I mean, just an incredibly lengthy career and now doing something fantastic with the National Medal of Honor Museum. So it's great to finally catch up with you. I know we've tried this many times, but uh, persistency is key here. Uh, let's get started because it's funny. I was going through your background. We were talking before we started recording. I have so much to get to you about. We, we literally crossed paths in Iraq. Uh, we had to have... Uh, and it's it's this happens every now and then when I run across uh, people within the Green Beret, you know, community within the special ops community, because I was fortunate enough to to be attached to those guys in 05 to 06. And you guys rotate in, rotate out much quicker than the regular army does. Well, I was sitting there picking my ass for over a year. You guys were moving in back and forth and back and forth. So uh, we absolutely uh, cross paths at some point. We'll see if we can hash it out as we get going with the show. But 
Uh, your career started way before 9-11. So uh, tell us why you decided to sign up for the military in a very relative peacetime world. Yeah, so I graduated uh, high school all the way back in 1990. So if that gives you a little indication of my age, just just hit 51. So going strong, though, going strong. Uh, Seasoned. Graduated all the way back in 1990 from Huntington, West Virginia. And I definitely want to give uh, my folks back in Huntington, West Virginia, a shout out. Uh, had a had a you know great uh, upbringing and man, all of that stuff just kind of combined together to really give me a solid base before I really even knew what was going on. But um, but really, you know, Mark, I, I didn't have a lot of opportunity. I came from a poor family. Uh, humble beginnings, I guess, is the better word for that. But, but came from humble beginnings and um, didn't really have a lot of options. And, and I... I discovered that the military was was a viable option for me. It was a way out of West Virginia. There there wasn't a lot of you know jobs and opportunity, and I wasn't uh, my parents didn't have the money to to send me to college. So so I kind of just put it on myself and and actually wanted to join the Marine Corps first. Uh, that was my that was option A, and then that didn't work out. So I ended up joining the Army, man, and. Um, and I think everything worked out the way it was supposed to. Um, when you decided to go into the military, did you have any preconceived notion of what the military was about? Anybody in your family talked to you about it? Was in the military? Do you have any, you know, sort of guidance or counsel on this? Yeah, you know, my my grandfather and some uncles uh, had served. You know, my dad is a pretty smart guy. You know, he's a glass factory guy his whole life, but. But, you know, just from talking to his dad and, you know, the uncles and the family and things like that. So so probably my dad gave me the the most counsel about joining the military. I think that was kind of his way of, of pushing me in a direction that he thought would would benefit me the most. But uh, the guidance back then, Mark, was like, hey, why don't you why don't you join and get a skill and then you can get some college money and then you come out and and you're set. So that was kind of like the direction that he was pushing me. And then, you know, things just took a turn as they typically do when you join the military. So, so that was kind of the initial plan was it, it was actually, it's funny. You're going to laugh when you hear this, but it was, it was, Hey, why don't you be an air traffic controller in the Marine Corps? And that's what I tried to do. And it just didn't work out. Yeah. You, you signed up back in the BOU can be days and strangely enough, we're right back there again. <laughs> yeah, right. It's B-O-U-T. funny how history repeats itself. Right. The greatest advertising campaign in the history of advertising, BOU can be, went away in favor of Army Strong, Army of One. Yeah, I lost track Whatever, of all I lost of track. And now we're back at BOU can be. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, BOU can, I, I just, I say all that and I chuckle because, uh, you know, one of the main reasons, you know, when, when, I was disgruntled on on active duty as a and this is a pre nine eleven world as a lieutenant outside of being a punk and a wise ass. Um, <laughs> I was disgruntled because I just I, I felt like that it wasn't the brochure. Like I wasn't being all I could be. Like it was just like you get up, you go to work, you know, you work till five o'clock, you come home. It's like this is not like what the commercials were saying. You know, like it wasn't all this hua stuff and everything else. Like I'm sitting in the middle of Fort Hood, Texas, like rotting away and sweating, uh, and we're not actually doing anything. So. You know, um, it's interesting that you decided, you know, to, to, to go the route that you did, because I was the opposite. Like, I didn't have this 
misdirection. I, I initially, I, I signed up for ROTC just to help pay for college. I thought I would do four years and done. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks ago, I just hit 24 years uh, of total service between the guard and active duty. So that's uh, amazing. Thanks for your service, man. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. you no, know, these things are going to work out. I, I've said repeatedly, the army has a funny way and the military has a funny way of putting you where you're supposed to be. Um, so Very true. Very true. For you, uh, you decided to be an infantryman. Did you know anything about the infantry? You just wanted to do it because it was cool. It was tough. Or you were one of those guys who was like, Hey, this is the ASFAB score I got. And this is all I was capable of doing. Well, I, I think it was probably a combination of, of different things. You know, the Marine Corps didn't work out and right. then, uh, you know, went, went towards the army. And I think, uh, a guy that it was like a senior when I was a sophomore, he had ended up joining and he was, you know, somewhat close to me. So I was able to talk to him when he came back from basic training. I remember, you know, words of wisdom that I still recall to this day was like, you know, the green OD socks are pretty itchy, you know, that, I mean, didn't really have a lot. Like, is there anything else that you might be able to share with me from your basic training experience beside the socks were, were itchy, but uh, you know, you hear from guys that they talk it up and it's like, Oh man, infantry, that's like the toughest. And, you know, I played football my whole entire life. And, uh, and I think I was kind of drawn to that and probably drawn a little bit to the camaraderie that, you know, what I was hearing described anyway. So the infantry, uh, seemed ideal, uh, as an ideal place for me. Uh, so you end up branching infantry, uh, you know, the first couple of, you, of years of your career, again, all this is in a pre nine 11 world. So, without kind of glossing it over too much. I mean, what are some of the highlights early on of your career as an infantryman? Yeah. So the first mission I ever, that I ever uh, completed uh, ironically was the joint uh, task force mission down on the, on the border of Mexico. (laughs) And uh, you know, we thought that was a big deal because it was something different. It was, it, you know, it had a little bit of excitement uh, to be down on the border, even though we weren't really, involved we were kind of like a static op out in the middle of nowhere just sweating to death and trying to avoid being bitten by rattlesnakes but you know there was nothing that we saw there was nothing that we reported but it had like a little bit of a flavor to it that wasn't like just normal training in the backyard we also did like a an exchange uh, with the german army so we did that for a few weeks. That was exciting. You know, I'd never been overseas before. Uh, we did some training in Panama and then they deactivated uh, Fort Ord, California, and they shipped us all up to, to Fort Lewis, Washington. So I was up there for a year. Um, then I ended up PCS into Campbell and probably one of the the bigger highlights from my regular army infantry days we got to do six months in Sinai, Egypt, uh, for the multinational force and observer. Uh, so that was, that was really cool. That was probably my really big first taste of leadership because I showed up, uh, you know, I was, a, I was an E5, I was a team leader. And then as soon as we showed up in Sinai, Egypt for our six month deployment, uh, there was something wrong with our squad with with our squad leader. I don't really recall exactly what his condition was, but I think it had something to do with Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So uh, I got a secret phone call, you know, in the middle of the night when I was on duty, and it was like, "Hey, I need you to secure this person's weapon, bayonet, all of those things. Someone will be there in a in a few hours, and they're going to pick him up, and he's going to take off." It's like, Roger that. And then, uh, 
he ended up leaving. So I ended up taking the squad. So that was, uh, that was my first big dose of, of leadership. So Did you find out whatever, what happened to him. Did he end up going to desert storm? Is that it? Uh, well, he had something had happened to him in desert shield, desert storm, okay. you know, like five years pr- previous. Cause I think, yeah, we were in Sinai, Egypt, July of 95 to like January 96. I remember those dates only because my son was born he was three weeks old and then I left for six months. So it's kind of, kind of crazy, but, um, but yeah, those were, those were some of the big highlights. I mean, like you said, uh, Mark pre nine 11, you know, not a lot going on. So doing, doing a border mission or doing an exchange, doing something in Sinai, Egypt was, was like, man, you felt big time. Like, man, we're, we're doing something. We're contributing. Right. Right. Um, when you were up at Fort Lewis, um, uh, was the Ranger Battalion up there at that point in time? They sure were. Yeah, we did were, you uh, exposure to them. Did you go, and I'm only asking because it's a natural lead into the special operations community, right? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question because you're exactly right. You know, that was my first exposure to special operations. Um, you know, obviously first group, first, special, first special forces group is at Fort Lewis as well, but they're such a different part of the compound, uh, or the base than, I didn't even know where those guys were, but we were adjacent to second ranger battalion. So that was my first exposure to the special operations community, you know, with ranger regiment guys. And we were just like, Holy cow. Like these dudes are on a whole nother level, you know, just seeing them do PT and they had different PT gear, you know, they wore the old, the all black, you know, silky shorts and t-shirts and all that type of stuff. So, um, yeah, man, those, those dudes were on a whole different level. So that kind of got my brain thinking a little bit like, you know, maybe there is something there. Uh, I don't know if I could do what these guys are doing, but maybe there's an opportunity. And then that kind of, you know, uh, piqued my interest even more when I got to Fort Campbell and I, I had a chance to be around fifth special forces group. Cause that's where they're uh, headquartered. So, so yeah, I think you're right. That's a great question. It really got like the juice kind of flowing, like kind of seeing what other people are doing out there, you know, in a world where everybody has the same uniform, somebody wearing something different will always catch your eye. No idea why. Yeah, for sure. You know, again, who are those dudes in baseball caps and why? Yes. Yes. How come no one's yelled at them yet? They just yeah. walking around here in a baseball cap. I don't get it. Um, yeah. And a few guys got beards. How's that? How's that? Uh, I mean, he doesn't shave. He yeah. can't. Like it's just you know it's I must be a terrible soldier. Terrible soldier. I chuckle at it just because it it, it's something that you know it's so beaten into your mindset about the way you're supposed to look as a soldier and everything else. And then we have these departures from that, and all of a sudden it's like, like oh my god, like you know I don't know. Anyway, just I'm 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 on the back nine. I'm on the 18th tee of my career, so you know I have I have a lot more reflexive mindset now than I ever did before. All right. So you ended up at Fort Campbell, you mentioned there, and then you decide to go to uh, special forces assessment and selection. Now, uh, how does that come to pass? Did you tell your command you wanted to do it? Was there a, like a volunteer list? How does that all pass? Yeah. So actually uh, I was gearing up while I was in Sinai, Egypt, since there's Jack and, you know, shit really to do over there. Right. Uh, so for six months, you know, just training and, got in ridiculous shape and I was already in, in really good shape anyway from, you know, being an infantry guy, being a young guy, being a young man. Uh, but, um, 
had some bad luck toward the end of that Sinai trip. Uh, we started doing some fast roping. They started incorporating that a little bit. Um, you know, hundred first air salt and all that stuff. But um, we we did some fast roping like the week before we went home, and I ended up breaking my left fibula. So all of that hard work and effort and training that went into to my prep for selection that really kind of sidelined me. But luckily, I recovered and and did some physical therapy and and did you know picked up all of my training again and actually had a, a really solid platoon sergeant that was a former ranger regiment guy that supported me now that wasn't the entire chain of command you know i heard all the comments my actually my company commander who i think i just ran into last year this is from the mid 90s i still remember a comment that he had made like are you sure you want to go to special forces you know they those guys never see their families and divorce this divorce that like it was really discouraging and, and I think you know as I've reflected on that moment I think it was kind of a way to you know he he knew exactly what he was trying to do he was trying to discourage me and probably keep me in the company but um didn't really appreciate that but um but you know some people were supportive luckily I had a platoon sergeant that was and um I ended up going in the fall of 96 and was fortunate enough to, to get selected. Okay. So um, what did you, how much studying did you do prior to assessment and selection? How much mental, because again, I, I've talked to guys who say they do none. They just want to go in blind and, and see what's in front of them. Other guys want to have this base of knowledge about what they're walking into. Which one were you? Um, I didn't really know much. You know, the recruiter guy that I was dealing with at at uh, Campbell was a guy that had been to selection before. So I, I tried to ask him, you know, a few things. And hey, is and, this a bad idea? <laughs> yeah. Well, he he had shared with me that uh, you know guys were putting like double A batteries in their gloves during team week, and he's like, man, don't don't cheat. Don't do any of those things. Those guys get caught. They're instantly dropped. And, and that like, man, that scared me to death as a, you know, cause you know, if you just think about like you're a regular army guy, you're used to doing what you're told and you know, there's not really far left and right limits. Like, you know, I was already pretty straight and arrow anyway. So when he told me like, Hey, don't, don't do anything like that. I was like, man, I took that to, to like, man, I took that to the bank. Like I'm not doing anything. I'm not going to jeopardize. I'm just going to do what I'm told. But I did a lot of rucking. Like I was definitely ready for rucking. I was definitely ready for running and all of those things. I was never bothered by, you know, doing land nav by myself or, or being out there at night by myself like that. I was never bothered by those things. So I was just hoping that, you know, I wouldn't get injured or, I mean, there's, there's luck that's definitely involved. I'm sure you talk to a ton of dudes that there's a ton of luck that's involved that, Hey, you don't get a branch in the eye or somebody doesn't fall, you know, during pails of pain or sand babies and they, they take out the back of your leg. And I mean, there's a ton of things that could go wrong. And um, I feel like I was more prepared. I, I didn't like really study the course or know a lot of guys that I could really get a lot of good Intel from, but you know, I was more probably focused on the physical aspect and, and getting through that way and trying to stay healthy. You survived the three weeks and you get in, obviously, right? They say, hey, you're good enough to go be a Green Beret. Then it's on to the Q course. Yeah. Um, 
did you know what you wanted to specialize in as far as in the green board, whether it was demo communications, medics, what was it? Terrible decision here. Terrible decision. So if we got some young, young listeners out there on the hazard ground, hopefully they could hear my story and be like, man, what an idiot. I hope I I don't (laughs) want to do what that guy did, but I tried to game the system. So I was like, it seems like, you know, from my West Virginia brain that they're good on Bravos and Charlies, but they really need deltas and echoes. They they need medics and comms guys. So it was like, you know, I've done the communication stuff and the infantry and, you know, I have a little bit of a base. So maybe that'll, maybe if I'm like on the fence, like this guy's decent. I mean, but they see that I want to be a communication sergeant then maybe they'll like that. I'll be more attractive to them. So they'll grab me. So was it in my heart of hearts to be a communication sergeant? No, but I thought that would make me more attractive as a candidate. So, uh, so that's what I put down and go figure. That's, that's what I ended up getting. And, um, you know, I had to suffer through those first few years on a team being the communications guy because in my mind, like communications was more like CCT, like combat controller, calling in airstrikes, calling, you know, killing bad guys. Right. Not like, hey, man, here's my computer or, hey, it's missing cables. <laughs> hey, can you set this up for the presentation? <laughs> hey, my watch, you know, my Suto stopped working. <laughs> Come on, God, fix it. It's like, man, it drove me crazy. Uh, that's funny. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, listen, uh, the the the. the Deltas that I remember, they they set up their. We had our own private server, our own private hard drive, our own private everything was inside the the Green Beret, the Special Ops community. There, everything was separate from what the rest of the regular army was working on. So there there was that. There was a lot of you know different level of communication via email uh, yeah. within the, the Green Beret community than there was in the regular army community. That's for sure. You didn't need AKO. Um, yeah, those who want to date themselves. AKO, dear Lord. Anyway, uh, okay, so you end up getting through it now. Um, where do you get your first assignment? And uh, you, well, I know you go to 10th group because we, we, we talked about this, but um, did you choose 10th group? It chose you. I mean, how, how did it all go down for you? I had a, I was one of those rare kind of people uh, that went through the Q course. I actually had a letter of acceptance that was signed from the fifth group command sergeant major. Uh, before I went and, and he thought it was a joke actually when I went in there, you know, cause I went into his office as 11 Bravo infantry guy. Hey, Sergeant major. I just went through selection. I want to come back. I want to be part of fifth group. And he was just like, really? <laughs> like he couldn't believe it. And he told, he shared with me, he goes, Hey, there's, there's not a lot of guys that want to come to fifth group because you know, there's no women, there's no booze, you know, all of those type of things. And I think he was probably kind of joking a little bit with me, but um I think I kind of caught him off guard. I didn't think that he had a lot of dudes that came in his office asking to go to fifth group, but that's what I wanted to do. And, and part of it was, well, most of it was selfish. You know, I was, I was familiar with, with Fort Campbell uh, at that time because we weren't deployed. Like I was, you know, getting ready to be, Uh, I was still hunting and fishing and going back home to West Virginia, which was like a five hour drive from, from Campbell for me. So selfishly that made a lot of sense to me uh but uh we were in robin sage and you know the last phase of of training or it it used to be i don't know what it what it is now i'm so far removed but 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they called out my name and I was, I was waiting to hear fifth group. And they said, you're going to first battalion, 10th special forces groups to guard Germany, which I didn't even think was an option. Like, uh, you know, to be forward deployed as a, as a younger guy. But I think they just, you know, it wasn't like I was a special breed or a special dude. It was just, they needed to fill some slots. So, so I got sent over there and, and then I realized later on, it's like, Hey idiot, you didn't have like the highest D lab score or whatever on the language side. So um, if, if so, you probably would have went to fifth group and you would have learned Arabic, but but I was, you know, my language was German and, and I was assigned to Stuttgart. So I'm glad it all worked out that way. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know anybody who went to 10th group who was disappointed with 10th group. Yeah. Uh, and for those who, for civilians listening, everything else, each special forces group is assigned to area of operations in the world. Fifth group is Southwest Asia, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, all the Middle Eastern countries where, again, there's no booze allowed. There's no, because when you go to those countries, you're supposed to follow the laws of that country. Well, guess what? In Germany, there's a lot of booze. There's a lot of women. There's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, that's the life of, of, it's why every second Lieutenant like me, who got an order of merit list, my first five assignments were all in Germany. Because if I a guy in Germany, would have had a blast. Uh, yeah. I, got, I got none of them. Of course, I ended up at Fort hood, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, but uh, you know, we, we digress. So seventh group is what? South America. Uh, South America yeah. Not a bad, not a bad group. Bad one either. Not a bad one either. So, they're all assigned to different areas of the world. And, and uh, no, that's why I say nobody who's ever gotten 10th group was upset they got 10th group. And, yeah. and the sort of corporate culture of 10th group is different. It's a lot different than the other ones. Like, I can tell you this personally from my time. Fifth group was very puckered up. Uh, everything was a lot more regimented, and it was very closer to the regular Army garrison, the way those guys thought and acted and everything else. 10th group was a lot more chill, brah. Let's yeah, go, yeah. Let's go skiing. Especially, yeah, especially first battalion. Uh, first battalion was definitely loose. I was, I was pleasantly surprised when I got there. So, yeah. Yeah. for me, it was it was a little bit of a, a neutral drop shift into reverse, going from tenth group to fifth group when they rotated out initially. Because I joined in on tenth group when I landed in Iraq, and they were there for about three months, ninety days. I was halfway through their tour, and then by the end of it, fifth group had come in. It was like, hey, you're doing all this shit wrong. Uh, I was like, oh, they just told me I was doing it right. Okay, now we got to do it different. Got it. Noted. So, yeah, the corporate culture is a little bit different. But you end up in Stuttgart, Germany. Now, um, you are there for 9-11, correct? You're still with 1st Bat 10th Group? Yeah, I was actually uh, – I was back in the States for 9-11. I was at, at the Advanced Non-Commissioned Officer course, uh, ANOC, which is a requirement to, to become a Sergeant First Class. And uh, that's where I found myself. I was like, you know, I just flown back to the States the week before, you know, 9-11. So, um, yeah, so it was crazy. I was, I sat in a classroom. I was sitting in a classroom with, with, you know, guys from all the different groups and, uh, you know, like those old school TVs that they had on like the carts. Uh, we had an instructor that came in and interrupted the class that we were in and whispered something in the instructor's ear, the other instructor's ear. And um, they, it was kind of quiet. And then they they wheeled in one of those TVs like you would like at a high school or middle school. And and we watched uh, the first plane had already hit and we watched the second plane hit. And uh, man, that was just. Yeah, that was a punch, does, punch in the gut. Does your thinking shift quick like you personally does it shift quickly 
from, oh, my God, look what's happening to, hey, we're going to war. Like, how quickly does that happen for you? Yeah, that that was pretty quick. Like, everything's changed. Um, you know, because up to that point, you know, we were we were heavily involved in in the Balkans, and we were doing some things in in Bosnia. We were doing some things in Kosovo. It was really the only show in town, uh, so it was kind of like the Super Bowl for us. And we kind of had the market on it. You know, it was it was our AO and. And I, I still remember like Kosovo, there was like one ODA, one operational detachment alpha, one special forces team from fifth group that was in Kosovo because they were working with like the UAE or something. And it was kind of like, you know, we owned it. It was, it was our show. It was our AO. And I, I remember thinking back on 9-11, I was like, man, you know, things have just changed. The theater focus is going to change. And, uh, you know, for some guys, they're going to have an opportunity. And I think I kind of leave, I, I think I was a little bit optimistic, like maybe we'll be involved in this, but it, it took several years before 10th group was, was actually ever involved in Afghanistan. It was much, you know, later past my time, but, but I think that was the initial thoughts though, Mark, it was like, man, everything's changed. This is, you know, this is going to be, war like the, here it right. is it's, it's different here. than what you had in in kosovo obviously most of that war was fought at thirty thousand feet and it wasn't really necessarily even done by us and i i probably shouldn't have glossed over kosovo because it was your your ao and again in 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 the special ops community again we didn't do anything regular army wise in kosovo but it was guys like you uh and there was a lot of air force folks too because again a lot of it was done at thirty thousand feet um but you know, what were some of the, the, the natures of the assignments that you guys had to do that? I mean, was it as simple as foreign internal defense and, and helping the, 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 you know, with Czechos, Balkan people? Who, who, who were you helping there? I don't remember. Yeah, so we had, we had a little bit of a combination of everything. What we were actually doing in 1st in Battalion, um, we were doing combat search and rescue. Like, we were like the, the 911 force anytime it was like, hey, we're getting ready to bomb you if you don't do this or, okay, we're not going to bomb you. You know, we're going to pull that back or, Hey, two weeks later, we're going to bomb you. We, it seemed like we were the nine one one four. So all of those threats going back and forth, the political maneuvering, uh, we were the combat search and rescue package for the air war. So we spun up, I don't even, man, we spun up a bunch of times and we went down to San Vito, Italy and we waited for for the air force to to do their thing eventually they they started dropping bombs and and we provided combat search and rescue uh weird timing on f- for for my team you know we or the team that I was on but uh there was two pilots that got shot down during the air war uh in Serbia and it happened both times it was our sister company that was that was on you know so we would be either in San Vito Italy we'd have three days off or you would be forward deployed in Tuzla in Bosnia. And that's where the combat search and rescue package was. So if a pilot went down, you know, we had a whole crew, we had PJs, uh, we had CCTs, special forces dudes. So that was the package. And both times, man, both times the pilots got shot down, uh, the other crew went in. Uh, so, so that was probably one of our main things that we did was combat search and rescue, uh, we did a little bit on the Pipwick side, uh, personnel indicted for war crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did some intel collection on that, like pattern of life. Um, 
you know, trying to get locations and, and looking at different types of vehicles and things like that. So mainly kind of snoop and poop type things, uh, nothing DA blowing gates and busting in doors, just pattern of life. And then, uh, we also, I did, uh, counter sniper security for president Clinton in the late nineties when, when he did some kind of peace summit in Sarajevo, which was really interesting. You know, we were all, we had all of these, uh, counter sniper teams aligned on sniper alley in downtown Sarajevo. So that was a really cool experience of doing that. And then kind of fast forward and over to Kosovo did a little bit more on the Pifwick side there. Uh, at this time, all of the national level assets were, were out of Bosnia. There was no, nobody in Kosovo except for us. So, so we kind of inherited a few Pifwicks, nobody major, but, but we did pick up a couple of guys and that was fun for us. Did another counter sniper mission, uh, counter sniper security mission. Uh, oh, this is kind of a funny story. We did a uh, counter sniper security for President Bush 43 uh, before 9-11. So this is early sometime in 2001. I don't remember exactly when, but uh, we just happened to be at Bonstown. Oh, it was inaugurated in January of 2001. So you had 10 months. Or yeah, yeah. Tight, to, uh, tight window, tight yeah. window. But uh, Bush 43 came to uh, Bonstill while we were there in Kosovo. And, and at that time, we were working with the guys from SEAL Team 2. So, um, you know, we had the outer cordon, which is typical for the Secret Service when when they're overseas. They can't really handle, um, you know, kind of like the just the the difficulty, I guess, of, of a mission like that with so many different. They need so many more assets. So so we kind of helped plug some gaps for them. Green Berets and, and Navy SEALs. We did outer cordon. And that was a real interesting experience for me because I remember uh from my position I remember looking back at like the main stage and you know it's just a sea of camouflage and I think they gave President Bush 43 they gave him like a gray army PT jacket um but I remember seeing the first lady Laura Bush she was wearing all white so she stuck out like crazy but uh funny funny so he was there it was Bush 43, First Lady, Condoleezza Rice, uh, Secretary of Defense, Rumsfeld, all those all those guys, right? Well, interestingly enough, uh, we were at the Texas Rangers game last week, and we had a board meeting, and and we had like six Medal of Honor recipients uh, that were sitting in our, in our area, in our suite. And wouldn't you know it, who comes to pay a visit to us? Uh, President Bush 43 and the First Lady. <laughs> So I actually had a chance. He still technically I got a really owns cool part picture. of the team, right? He still technically owns part of the Rangers. I'm not for sure if he's part of the Rangers or not. I, man. I, I mean, I know he was prior to. He was prior president. Um, I think he's really involved, especially. I mean, right now, man, they're they won today. They're burning it down. They're in first place. So, um, uh, but you know, I, and I got a great picture of this to prove this, Mark, just in case uh, anybody doubts it. But. uh I had a great chance to actually have like, you know, uh, probably a minute and a half conversation with the president. And I said, Hey, sir, I know you, you don't remember me. You would never remember me, but I, I actually had a chance uh, and it was a great honor for me to provide counter sniper security for you back in 2001 in Kosovo. And I started getting ready to tell him like the people that were there and he started naming them off. He goes, Oh yeah, that was the trip with me. And Laura was there and Condi and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and he remembered. And I was like, well, this might sound weird, sir, but 
but I do remember exactly what the first lady was wearing. She was wearing all white. It kind of made me nervous, but uh, it was really cool to have that exchange with him. And then of course we got over to what I'm doing now and he's like, Hey, let's get this museum built, man. Let's quit messing around. So we'll talk about that. I'm sure later, but it was a really cool exchange that I had. So that was one. Uh, We also did some, some reconnaissance. We, that was primarily what we were doing in Kosovo. What's what's great about that. And and again, I don't think, you know, because special forces has taken on a whole life of its own now, right? Because it's so magnified in the media and everything else. And they've been used in so many different ways than really ever genuinely intended. This stuff you were doing in Kosovo is pure SF Green Beret mission skill set. It's what you guys trained on. It's what you worked for. Like, you know, the kicking indoors stuff in Baghdad and, and bringing bad guys to dress. Sure, that direct action stuff, that's always cool. And anybody who you know, has that, that bone in their body of wanting to bring bad guys to justice, right? Or, or, or has a draw to combat itself. Understands that and do it. But by nature, that's not necessarily an SF mission. Like, that's more, right. believe it or not, that is more, you know, whether you want to call it Navy SEAL and Delta type stuff. But Green Beret is a little bit of a different skill set. And I hear you talk about this, and I'm like, it seems like, and I could be wrong, obviously, because I'm not in the, the, the SF community now or anywhere near it, but... You know, these missions seem like a relic of a time gone by for Green Berets. Yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm glad that that we had a chance to to do these missions because I think it really just made us more well-rounded. You know, I, yeah. I kind of felt bad for the guys that grew up and and they only seen a few, you know, like Baghdad trips and things like that. Yeah. And then they go somewhere else and they're like, hey, we're not doing that anymore. Like we were, you know, oh, this, I, I've got to go like, to some road country and figure my way out. No, yeah, we're not just, you know, looking yeah. for bad guys, right? It's 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 a different world. Yeah, so that was that was basically the highlights, though. We we did a lot of reconnaissance work. Uh, we, we had a chance to do a little bit of everything. And uh, I feel like it was, you know, it, it really made us more well-rounded as, as special forces guys. So so it was it was all good. It helped it helped definitely help prepare for what was to come, you know, later on. All right. So 9-11 happens and now you're back at Fort Carson. Um and you mentioned uh, uh, Stugart. Stugart, sorry. Um uh, you mentioned a moment ago though that like you felt like, you know, everything was changing. The theater of operations was now changing. Um at least the focus was going to be Iraq. Well, initially Afghanistan, right? Yeah. Uh, which is way out of your, which is way out of 10th group's realm. Did you guys think, Hey, we're never going to end up there just because it's not RAO and we don't have to worry about it kind of deal. Was that your initial feeling? It was, man. It was definitely. Cause I, I ended up staying uh, in first battalion. I got there in the fall of 98 and I left in the fall of 2002. Okay. So, you know, from, what was it? October of 2001, all the way up until I left, there was no talk. There was nothing about first battalion, 10th group doing anything in Afghanistan. Right. And, and actually um, one of the things that I did that, that we were tasked to do. Uh, and I remember this specifically uh, one of our SF brothers, uh, Stanley Harriman was killed early in the war. I, I don't recall if it was Oh one or Oh two, but he was one of the earlier uh, KIAs on the special forces side. And because he was a green beret and, and we were green berets in Germany, you know, we were tasked to, to go up 
to the to the airport and and bring him off the plane and and you know that was an honor but at the same time it was like you know like inside I think all of us we didn't really even have to say it but at the same time it was like man we're not in the war you know and and our brothers are getting killed and and we're doing you know we're doing this type of detail so it was kind of it was kind of a kick in the shorts a little bit. Uh, I mean, we were honored to do it. it. It was a privilege, but at the same time, it was like, man, we would have rather been, been there fighting, but uh, that's just the way it was. And then in the fall of Oh two, I left Germany and uh, arrived at Fort Carson and it was a totally different world, man. I, I walked into uh, a battalion and a company and a team room and I was late to the party, dude. Like everybody was, hey, we're doing train up for Iraq. There's there's going to be an invasion soon. And he, welcome to the team. And let's get ready to go do this Iraq thing. And I was like, well, hey, what what's what are you guys talking about? Like there was that kind of beating of the drum, I guess, uh, that had been going on. But, you know, it's like, oh so we get to do this, you know, so it was, it was interesting. It was fresh and I was blown away at first. And then it was like, all right, buckle up. Here we go. When do you get to your first Iraq deployment? Uh, the first, our first, you know, we did the initial infill right into Iraq. So that right. was uh March, you know, we pre-staged, we left Carson, right. we pre-staged in Romania. And then we eventually went to Jordan and then we flew in uh, my least favorite operation name, uh, Operation Ugly Baby. That was the initial infill into northern Iraq. It's the dumbest name ever. That's why probably no one knows of it or has heard of it. But it was the longest air infiltration since World War II. Wow. Uh, special, oh, special so outside. Explain that? that. Meaning what? So the initial plan was, Mark, we were going to fly in and stage in in turkey because we were going to be you know our plan was to link up with the kurdish peshmerga up north and keep all of those iraqi divisions up north instead of like hey there's no americans here so we're gonna we're gonna flood down to baghdad and reinforce because that's the center of gravity let me let me just set some background for the civilians you know people who don't understand you know what's going on so in northern you know iraq was basically decided into three secular divisions right you had the shiites the sunnis and the kurds the kurds basically stood stayed in the northern part you know uh, of 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 iraq you know you're talking the mosul area up to the iraq turkey border right up there kurds were a lot more friendly they were a lot more pro-american they were a lot more westernized as opposed to sunnis and shias who constantly battled it out for control saddam was a sunni he had a sunni government the Sunnis and Shias hated each other, and the Kurds are sitting there going, hey, we're all fine up here. Just leave us alone, and we won't bother you. And there's always been an argument for years about maybe they should have split Iraq into three separate areas for the Kurds, the Sunnis, and the Shias, and everybody would live peacefully, kind of like Israel and Palestine kind of deal, whatever. I say all this to say, for the audience who isn't aware, that the idea of working with the Kurds was, it, it, for us, was, hey, we could actually you know, come from the north and if we were struggling, we'd have major reinforcements that were on our side that didn't mind going to take out Saddam because, you know, we so we had this sort of in-bed Iraqi force that was willing to fight with us. So I just wanted to set that for the audience, but go ahead. 
Yeah, that was great, man. That was uh, that was a quick lesson right there. That was great stuff for the for the casual person that's not familiar. Like that was a that was a great rundown. But that yeah, was definitely- not everybody in Iraq wanted the American like, hated Americans, right? Like they, there was a there was a, a good portion of people who were like, "Hey, please help us. Thank you." Definitely the the Kurdish Peshmerga because we you know we've been helping them with that you know enforcing the the no air uh, the no uh, the flight zone and all of those things. So. Um, so yeah, they were definitely friendly and and they welcomed and they wanted us to be there. So, uh, but the plan was, you know, we were going to infill in from, from Turkey into Northern Iraq and link up with our Kurdish Peshmerga and then start, uh, creating some havoc and keep all of those Iraqi, uh, divisions up there, uh, you know, against us. And we were going to use a lot of air power and all those type of things. But, um, at the, you know, I don't remember exactly when it was, but Turkey said, Hey, you can't use our airspace. You can't use our land. Uh, you're not going to do it. So you need to, you need to think of something else. So at the last minute, they had to kind of come up with a Hail Mary plan. Like, how are we going to get, you know, second and third battalion special forces and, a um, a battalion from first, uh, from third group, you know, how they were going to get us all into Northern Iraq so we can link up with our Kurdish Peshmerga. So they figured out, uh, we flew into Jordan and, I guess on a map, they said, man, that's one ugly baby. So that's what I heard. That's how it got its name, Operation Ugly Baby. Um, but we had to fly in. Um, staff officers, right? Staff officers. They're just. That's they're, what I blame, dude. It yeah, was, they're, they're, a staff officer. They're, they're a weird breed. <laughs> so we flew in. Uh, six somebody wrote that on their OER, by the way. Coined yeah, the yeah. Somebody, and they got somebody definitely has that. Yeah. And somebody they got credit. It, 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 embarrassingly enough, somebody actually probably put that on there as a source of pride while everybody else was laughing at that moron. I would I would love to know who it was. But um, but yeah, so we ended up flying in. And the problem was, Mark, uh, our our air power didn't have enough time to like soften up all of the targets. You know, it's a whole entire country of, of targets for them to hit. And and they couldn't take out all of the AAA, the anti-aircraft artillery. Um, and they couldn't take, you know, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't destroy, you know, more vehicles and Iraqi soldiers and all those type of things. So there was still a lot of enemy defense uh, that was there. So we had to fl- fly the Western part of Iraq uh, up to the North. And then we kind of hung a right at Mosul and we, you know, went into what they'd call, call Kurdistan, you know, where, where the Kurds were um, in Erbil and that, in that type of area. But I think it was like six hours, but, but we really got shot up pretty bad that, that whole entire way. Well, the first part we didn't, there was, everything was fine, but, but the flight, you know, they were flying so low, they were flying right on the the floor of the desert, uh, 200 feet, 300 feet. I mean, it, it was low. And then they had to take a lot of evasive action and, um, you know, all the planes got hit. Uh, one of the planes got hit so bad, they actually had to declare an emergency and at least Turkey did allow them to come in to, to land that plane. But, but we finally made it after several hours, uh, terrible flying. I'm still not a fan of flying to this day. If the plane does any type of jerky action, I instantly think back to those days because it wasn't like we were sitting in the seat of an airplane, you know, like popcorn and drinks. Like it was, there was no seats. We were sitting on equipment or sitting on our butts. 
on on the belly of the plane and we were probably snap leaked in so we wouldn't get thrown around but it was a uh it was definitely an intense flight and i was so damn happy to land uh in kurdistan and and eventually get off that plane man it was it was uh it was something for sure all right so you get down there in iraq um for the invasion Take me through kind of what your mission was, what you guys were supposed to do and, you know, uh, how it all unfolds for you. Yeah. Bad memories here, man. Bad memories. We were like the redheaded stepchild team um, for the battalion, not just like redheaded stepchild for the company. But before I got there, so I was getting punished for stuff that, and it was a terrible accident. I mean, someone got, someone got hurt really, really badly, a green beret. Um, How? Before I got there, they were doing some training at Fort Carson and they were doing something with munitions. It was like a newer munitions. I think it was something like maybe the slam or something like that. I I really don't even know that much about it, but whatever this new munition technology was, but whatever it was, the Charlie on the team that I ended up going to, I won't say his name, but there was a terrible accident and he was blown up. Uh, He survived. And I think he's fine. He's missing some some parts. But there was this terrible incident and, and our medic had to save his life. Uh, thank God that, you know, 18 Deltas, our, our medics, our special forces medics are so great because he saved this dude's life. Because the medevac birds, you know, because it was an explosion, they were worried about landing. So there was delays. There was all kinds of crazy stuff. But because of that incident, which happened several months before I even got there, you know, our team leader and our team just had like a, a bad mark, you know, it's like, can't trust these guys. They, you know, one of their own got blown up. So, um, so we were kind of like just pushed to the side and while our brother and sister teams were out there calling in airstrikes and killing tanks and, and uh, our halo team and our company is uh, famously known in Oh three for being at the back of pass uh, they had tanks coming their way and they were, you know, they were killing tanks with javelins and stuff like that. It's actually one of, it's a good friend of mine. His name's Eric Stragati, uh, has a couple of tank kills under his belt. But while they were doing that, guess what we were doing? We had to set up an enemy prisoner of war camp. That was what our special forces team mission was. So that's how much we were in the doghouse. And it yeah, was that, that is bastard redhead stepchild kind of stuff right there. It was painful, bro. It, it was painful. Um, and we would see those guys come back from, from being, you know, forward. And, you know, like one of the guys I remember, he had like all of his DCUs were bloodied and he was carrying like a sni- uh, Russian sniper rifle or something. It's like, oh, man, uh, here we are down here at the prisoner, of, you know, enemy prisoner war camp. And we got like one person uh, because the Kurds, they weren't going to pass over anybody to us you know they had their own techniques and how they like to deal with people and and i'm not saying that all bad like oh they were going to beat them and torture them to death but they have their own ways they do it and they build relationships or you know whatever they do but i think we had one like mid-level probably like the equivalent of a staff sergeant e6 you know bath party dude and uh that's who we you know, that's who we were responsible for. It was terribly painful. I was somewhat bitter. Uh, 
toward the end, um, once we kept advancing or once the teams kept advancing and making progress and just, you know, wiping out tons of Iraqi units, uh, when we were getting ready to move into Mosul is when we finally had our chance to like, you know, by this time, the 173rd, it jumped in. Uh, not going to make any negative comments about those guys. 173rd, it jumped in. Had, I didn't know there were negative comments to be made. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying it, but other people are like, hey, these dudes had a combat jump. They jumped in. You guys were already there and secured the the drop zone. And that's what other people say. I'm not going to say anything negative about the 173rd. Well, uh, okay. I'll just provide my own personal commentary here. You don't have to say anything negative. Okay. Uh, okay. That's a whole bunch of badge. I'll just call it what I, it's crap. Like, great. I have badges I never wear. Like, and I, I learned that more than anything from the Green Beret community, right? I have a combat action badge I never wear it. I have other badges. I just don't put them on. Like, I don't care. Like, I get it's important. Infantrymen want a CIB. I get it. Combat jumps is a badge. It's important. It's a thing on the record that you want to have. I get it. You know, but then we get into this, this, intra-agency pissing contest between each other over little things like that. Uh, to me, and this is just Mark's opinion, I, I think everybody should have the opportunity if it organically presents itself, right? But there are too many people who try to force a situation to happen. Again, like, oh, let's just get you on ground, infantrymen, let's get you on ground, let's get you outside the wire, fire one shot, and we can write up your CIB. Like, we are we are working too hard for things that aren't genuinely all that important. It, so that's that's the only comment. When you now when you put the context to it, I knew what you were talking about. I get why you won't say anything negative. You don't have to. I, I military guys understand it. I just wanted to paint it for everybody else. Yeah, when when those guys came in, and I think they uh, we had some tenth mountain guys that that eventually came up up north as well. So uh, I believe that's actually who we we did our transition with was, was the 10th mountain. They took the little baby enemy prisoner war camp that we had. And, and we actually, um, one of the first things that we got to do was uh, liberate, if you will, Altoon Capri, a city that was toward, toward the West. Um, No big deal. It was, it was insignificant. I mean, there was no one there. We saw some equipment and things like that, but then, um, we actually went in and took Mosul. Uh, that was a little bit interesting, uh, going in there in mass, uh, to take the airport. Um, so that's, that's when we actually got to kind of do what we thought, at least what I thought special, like what I was here to do was, right. you know, like the Mosul action. Uh, we were involved in a, in a very minor skirmish that, wasn't that big of a deal, but we, we did have a firefight when we went into Mosul. Uh, I thought it was going to be much, much worse. I mean, that first night that we drove into the airport, it was like escape from New York, you know, people are out on the streets and they're around barrels with fire and everyone, everyone and their brother has AKs because they're allowed to have AKs. So it's Iraq. um, Yeah, it's Iraq. Uh, and it's a war, but, but that's when I first was like, okay, we, we have something going here. Um, but then the 101st, General Petraeus, all those guys stormed up, and uh, we were doing a lot of uh, patrolling in and around Mosul, and 
you know, everybody was looking for weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and it's funny, I will tell you this. We were stopped, I don't even know how many times, Mark, we were stopped by people that, you know, waving their arms like frantically and they wanted to talk to us. And we're driving around in soft skin vehicles, by the way. We're in these little Toyota Hilux vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we would figure out what they're talking about. And, and they were wanting to report like weapons of mass destruction. And <laughs> it was like, man, this is such a great uh, lie. Like everybody really thinks that they're here. I mean, even the people in this country think that they're here, but, but we could never find anything. Um, I do think one of our most significant mistakes early on, we didn't have the capacity, man. We didn't have the capacity to deal with the munitions. I I mean, I remember so many times driving by just like tons of RPGs and explosives. Like, yeah, dude, we just, well, that's, we I mean, anything I, with it. I said, I, I, I would say it this, when you talk about weapons of mass, destruction, I, I would argue it depends on your definition of mass, right? Like if you're yes, thinking about good nuclear, point. biological chemical, no, you're not going to find them because even if they did have them, they probably hit them all much better than we could have found or dismantled them all or whatever. But when you talk about some of these weapons caches, Daryl, and you know this, you, you, you you're, you're like, this is Fort Knox kind of weapons cache. Like, you know, like it, it, it it's, more than you could comprehend. And you would sit there and look at this thing and go, how the hell are they going to fire all these things? Like there's, there's not enough people to, to, so yes, was, could you create mass destruction with that? Sure. You could, if you wanted to, uh, you guys ever seen, you know, three or four, one, five, five rounds blow up with a five gallon cast can. That's pretty destructive. If you ask me, I mean, but what do I know? That's not what they were talking about when they said weapons of mass destruction, but lo and behold, there were plenty of those things running around and enough for us to run over on a routine basis. That's for damn sure. So yeah. it depends on your definition of mass when we say mass destruction. Yeah, I, I, man, I hope that that's, you know, in the history books or it's an after action review, because if you're going to go into any country and if you don't have a plan to deal with all of that, because looking back, Mark, you, I know, you know, the same thing I'm getting ready to say here, but somebody had to deal with those. A lot of guys and gals had to deal with all of those explosives that we couldn't secure. And a lot of a lot of people had to eat that, and it cost a lot of people their lives. Uh, it cost a lot of people their limbs, and you know, yeah. I don't have all the answers, but no, I, I wish I that there was something. You know, hopefully, it, people are learning those lessons. It, it just, you know, it's political. Uh, it's it's semantics. It's a whole bunch of different things, and and I'll say it very simply: to those of us on the ground, politics and semantics don't mean shit. Kiss my ass with your politics and semantics. It's about me keeping my ass alive and everybody else who was with me. Uh, so whether you think it's mass destruction or not, it's the war that we had to fight on the ground. And and that's different than sub- politics and semantics could ever, you know, they can't bridge that gap any size, way, shape or form. So there is that. All right. So the first part of your, your deploy, your first deployment to Iraq ends in Mosul and everything else, you end up getting back. Is your next one in 06? You have another one in between there. No, actually, the you know we we finished that up. I think we spent a couple of months there, and then we redeployed uh, right. to Carson, and then we did a, a Kosovo trip. Oh wow! In between, yeah, it's yeah, giggles, huh? We still had the Kosovo responsibility, so we did that, and then 
the next time I was in Iraq, which was my second trip, uh, was late 04, early 05. And we were out at KMTB. I don't know if you're familiar with this place. Kirkush military training base out on the border of Iran, uh, Balad Ruz, Mandalay. It was east of Bakuba, if Yep. You know, for those listening that might be familiar with Iraq, but it was actually uh, just for reference, Bakuba is about 45 minutes to an hour northeast of Baghdad. Right. If you look on a map, it's right there. Yeah. Yeah. So we were in like a little sleepy place. There wasn't a whole lot going on. And I remember the group commander at that time uh, was really contemplating hard, man. He He was like, man. You know, he's like, you know, looking at a chessboard and he's got all his chess pieces and he really wants, he wants a lot of shit happening, right? And uh, here we are in this little sleepy town and he really wanted us to move us closer to Bakuba because there was a lot going on there. Oh, there was a lot of bad dudes in Bakuba. Yeah, yeah. Filled. It was one of those towns in Iraq that you never heard in. You knew Sadr City, right? You oh, knew, yeah. You, you knew the, the Sunni Triangle. You knew the area, like. You know, those are the ones that the news reported on that had bad dudes in it. Bakuba, you never heard about it in the news. A whole lot of bad dudes hanging out in Bakuba. There was a whole lot of dudes. It was just, it was your basic ghetto slum with bad dudes, bad terrorists, just living it up. Let me test your memory, Mark. I want to see if you remember this public affairs media fiasco that happened <laughs> in uh, late 04. Do you remember in 04, uh, a unit that was getting ready to rotate into the box, you know, getting ready to rotate into Iraq. Um, I think they were pre-staged somewhere, like they were in Saudi or whatever. But the Secretary of Defense, Rumsfeld, came and talked to them. And a kid from that unit asked him, uh, sir, are, what about the armor for our vehicles? Like, you know, we don't have armor. It's like hillbilly armor. Do you remember like that whole media just vaguely? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I only say that I I was kind of just joking around with you a little bit, but the only way I remember that is because my 0405 rotation at KMTB, we were there with the 278 regimental combat team out of Tennessee. Great, great people. But it was one of their soldiers that put the sec def on the spot about the the hillbilly armor. So they kind of were like, man, they had a black eye and they had a, a big hole to dig out of because of that, that soldier. I mean, you know how it goes, but. Yeah. Well, those are, those are the good old days. Um, is this deployment fairly uneventful for the most part? Oh man. Another, another bad one, man. Uh, <laughs> and bad one in terms of like, you didn't really do anything. Uh, didn't do a whole lot. I mean, yeah. I mean, we were trying to. Also, you have to remember two things and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little background here. When you hit 04, remember, the main portion of fighting, we invaded in March 03. March, uh, May 03 was mission accomplished, the banner, right? And then it was just hanging around. Like, we didn't know what to do for a solid 8 to 12 months. We didn't do anything. Like, we didn't know what to do. We, we didn't have a plan to get out. We weren't leaving. We were just there hanging out. It was, And it was fairly peaceful, all things considered. It, it was. Once and, you got to the latter part of 04 is when a lot of Iraq people started getting pissed. Be like, you guys need to get the F out. Like, you know, if yeah. you're going to be here, we're going to start, you know, if you're, I don't need you here anymore. You, you did your stuff. Get out. We'll yeah, take you're care. right, man. You're right. We we did have some success, so I'm probably downplaying this a little bit. You know, I was doing a lot of targeting and, you know, we were talking to local Iraqis and and we we actually exhausted 
all of the bad guys in our area, like, you know, and, and it wasn't violent. I mean, we, we rolled most of the guys up without, you know, firing a shot or anything like that. But uh, there's one mission in particular, we knew we were getting a lot of reporting and people thought we were crazy. I mean, absolutely. It was like, Hey, this is our higher calling us. Do you really want to put AMZ talking about Zarkawi? Do you really want to put AMZ in your report that he's driving in two vehicles or whatever? I mean, it was that level of, of like oversight and disbelief. Like, you know, anything with Zarkawi, who for the listeners out there was the most wanted guy in Iraq, probably the same, you know, not the same level of, of bin Laden, but I mean, you know, I guess he was the bin Laden of Iraq. You know, he was the number one guy that we were after. So, um, but we were getting that reporting in that area. Like something's going on, there's meetings and it's out in the middle of nowhere. There's just lots of space. Well, there was one day in particular, Mark, that's kind of like my punch in the balls day. Um, the team was gone on kind of like a, a confidence target, if you will, with, you know, all kinds of Iraqi army soldiers you know, our special forces team, the guys from the 278th. And it was basically like a confidence target. We're going to look for some uh, caches and do this and do that, you know, small type of thing. And me being the arrogant E7 that I was at this time, I was like, that shit's below me. Uh, I'm not going to do a cache recovery training with the Iraqi army because I was more on the targeting side. And I was like, I'm not doing that. That's dumb. Um, and I gave my seat in the Humvee to an E7 from the 278th uh, Regimental Combat Team, like their S2 guy. And what happens that day? Daylight op, they run into a no kidding Al-Qaeda training camp in the middle of flipping nowhere. It's like a L-shaped ambush is what they ended up running into. Oh. And uh, our team with the 278th and the Iraqi army um, killed 20, 25 dudes with machine guns, AKs, mortars, uh, vehicles with uh, all kinds of equipment. I mean, a couple of guys squirted. And to this day, I'm still wondering like, man, they were protecting somebody very, very valuable. Don't know who it was. Uh, I will say that later on, you know, Zarkali was killed in that Bakuba area, which wasn't the area that I'm talking about right now, but, you know, it was close. But these were hardcore yeah. foreign fighters that these guys ran into. Now, I will say this, unfortunately, uh, there was two guys killed from the 278th in a trench uh, because it was trench fighting, grenade tossing, and... uh Guess what Daryl's doing? Daryl's working the radios, trying to help the team with air support and helos and all of that. I eventually got out there in the evening, me and a partner, uh, we got out there in the evening and we, we cleared all the targets the next day. But um, just, you know, to kind of give a little taste, like, oh, I missed that one, you know? Okay. Um, but there's twofold here. You know, I mean, let me just play devil's advocate. You basically... And I'm not gonna say abdicated responsibility, but um, you passed on a mission that you easily could have gone on. Not only did you miss a firefight, but other dudes got hurt in it. Was there any sense of 
Maybe that doesn't happen if you're there. No, I mean, the guy that took my seat, um, you know, he stayed back. Like none of our guys got, got hurt. I think we might've had, no, I think maybe our team sergeant, um, our team sergeant was awarded a silver star. And I think he did get a purple heart later for some hearing or, or maybe some, some fragment, but like the guy that replaced me, you know, that he wasn't a casualty. It was, it was the, like the 278, the, like the, the infantry, the fighter guys that were actually up there engaged. But uh, I think my regret was more like, man, that's my team. I should have been there. Uh, from what I heard, they performed, you know, exceptionally well. And, you know, everybody did a great job and everybody was in the fight. Um so yeah, it was just one of those things like, man, I missed it and it it hurts. And and I tell this story. So hopefully there's some listeners out there, especially if there's some some military folks, like, hey, be very careful if uh if you're gonna be a little bit arrogant and think something's below you. Uh you just never know, man. You never know what's gonna happen. And when you're in combat, man, it's you know, you just never know. Hundred um, percent. Okay, so and then you end up. I want to fast forward because you end up getting back to Iraq in in '06, and um, this is interestingly enough where where uh, we ended up crossing paths, but not knowing it until you know maybe an hour ago. Um, I had gotten there in, in March of '05, somewhere in that range. Um, and again, it was it was Third uh, Battalion, Tenth Group was there at the time, and. Uh, I had worked with those guys. Um, I'd have to go back and look at my journal. I do remember some of the names uh, of the folks who were there. Where uh, were you at, Mark? I was at RPC. I was, okay. at, I was with the big palace on the hill. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. We were, we, were, we were over there. That's where we were headquartered. Now, I was, you know, I was running the B team. I was with the B team and running the forward logistics element there. Um, so I was in the support center. And a lot of my doings every day were more confined to support missions, running convoys and things of that nature. But I also built the support battalion for the ISOP brigade. That was the one, that was the one mission that I had that I was fortunate enough to, you know, help write the MTO, assign all the vehicles and all the equipment and everything you got from that level to putting these guys through me and 211 Bravos, putting these guys through basic FM seven dash eight infantry tactics and how to survive in combat kind of deals. And, and run convoys because that's what the support battalion was, was supposed to be doing. So, um, you know, that was a, it was an incredible mission. I'll, I'll say it repeatedly in 24 years, that was the best 15 months of my life. Um, it was, it was the most impactful 15 months of my life and, and I wouldn't be where I am today without it. Um, sounds like it, man. Sounds like it. it, You know, it was one of those things where, you know, you kind of get thrown into the deep end, but here's the interesting part too. Um, you know, I, I didn't know really what I was getting into when I was there. Um, and I didn't really understand uh, how the environment until I was there. It was it was funny. I don't know if I've ever told this story before, but I remember there was they needed somebody to be a contracting officer. And I had never done the job, but people had told me what I was supposed to do. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. Like, you know, I can handle that. I can negotiate. I can do this. I And I had asked one of the O4s in the Green Beret realm. About it. I said, look, I'll, I'll do that. I don't mind. I'll, I'll, you know, and I think he took it as an affront of, oh, this guy's just looking for the easiest route and wants to do X, Y, and Z and doesn't want to do any work. 
And he flat out told me, no, you're not getting that job. You're going to go over here now and work in the sports center. I was like, okay. Cause I remember hearing back. I'm like, yeah, they didn't really like the way you went about that. I'm like, really? I didn't realize I was doing it wrong. I thought that was the job I was supposed to do. Like I was really naive um, and super naive to the environment that I had walked into. And it ended up working out in my favor because I ended up, you know, taking this job in the sports center. And it was one of those things where it was like, you're getting thrown into the fire. Not only are you not going to be behind a desk doing a contract, you're going to be outside the wire like four or five days a week, you know, putting your ass on the line here. For sure. Uh, and that was an unnerving sort of thing initially for me. I, I didn't really know what I was getting into. And I was fully admittedly way out of my depth at the start. And I thankfully had another captain who was there who was very much uh, willing to hold my hand as we did a right seat, left seat ride until those guys had popped smoke and gotten out of town. He was a chemical officer. His name is Tim Sikorsky. Hmm. Um, and uh, he was running the support center at the time. And I just basically backfilled him. But, you know, I mean, it was one of those things where he uh, he showed me the ropes and I was able to, to pick it up on my own. But it was, you know, one of these things where I quickly learned, hey, shut your mouth, do your job, don't ask for anything. And just go to work every day. And if you put your head down, you do that. And they see you do it and you do it well. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, you're good. You're good. good. Well, I know for a fact, man, that was uh, what you were doing. That was, and I, and I benefited from what all your hard work, by the way, in 07, when I, I did the ISOF recce mission. But uh, uh, in yeah. 06, I got to see exactly what you were doing. And uh and that's, I mean, man, those dudes running those convoys in Baghdad, I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. That's not an easy life. And I, I probably have about five or, five or 6,000 miles of, of road time through in, in and around Baghdad. I mean, it was, yeah, man, that's, that's not easy. That's not easy. No it was, way. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't <laughs> trips to Balad back and forth, uh, Fallujah, Ramadi, um, you know, all the way up to Taji, Bakuba area, down the south, Matmadia, Radwania, uh, you know, all those areas. It was everywhere we went, we just went by car, you know, like I wasn't taking a lot of choppers anywhere. Yeah, and that's areas that a lot of guys are like, oh, boy, we're going to go into, you know, Fallujah or we're going to Bakuba. We got to go to Blood. We got that means we got to go through here. Like those are areas, man, that that a lot of guys are just like, oh, and, you know, and, and I like to say, too, sometimes like you know, we had some assets or, you know, like our national level assets, uh, you know, where you have the support and you, you have air assets and all of those type of things. Like, man, what a, what a great benefit that is when you don't have to worry about some of the other things. I'm not saying that it made it, you know, less dangerous or whatever, but no, I, continually I, driving, man, you're rolling the dice well, every day. Yeah. There was, there was that sense of impending doom always. And, I'll set it up for your deployment this way, because again, you know, 05 and 06 really had started the height of the violence preceding the surge in 07. Right. And so you mentioned the danger, but it was, it was, you know, you had Marines being hung from the bridge in, in Fallujah, right. You had that going on. You had the bombing of the Samara mosque. You had a whole bunch of these seminal really events that were just, you know, uh, things that you heard about on the news that were, uh, you know, things that, everybody was talking about and, and we're, we're living there through this whole thing. So again, I had second battalion, 10th group there when I first started, sorry, third battalion, 10th group there when I first started, went to second battalion, fifth group. Uh, and after they left thir uh, third battalion, 10th group had come in. I'm sorry. Second battalion, let me do three, 10, two, five, uh, two, 10. So, um, 
you guys had come in and I remember too, you know, I, the, the previous battalion commander had uh, from fifth group had set your battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Swindell up with the knowledge that, Hey, at least these national guard guys, you know, this guy at least knows what the hell he's doing. You can trust him. He's, he's good. And, um, you know, it was one of those things again, I was fortunate enough to be pulled along on a whole lot of things I shouldn't have been doing, pulling security on, you know, late night missions and raids and everything like, you know, being interrogations. Like I was just, cause I was around and I was capable. They're like, Hey Mark, let's go. And I said, okay, all right. I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, I just keep looking. I didn't want to tell anybody. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I was just sort of faking it until I made it or until I got made one or the other. Um, yeah. But it, it, it all ended up working out. And I'll say this about uh, Colonel Swindell. Uh, and, and his staff, you know, um, and God, I can't remember the major's name. I want to say it started with a B. It's like Bilecki or Bilecki or something like that. Um, he was the XO. Um, I could see his face and I, he had a full thick head of black hair. Anyway, I, I have a Bellinoy. That's it. Major Bellinoy. That's it. You got it. I knew it yeah. started with a B. Um, I, yes. That's he, all you needed was to give me that B. He, he was the XO. I, I, I talk with him a lot, you know. And um, I think Taft was the S3, maybe. Yeah. Taft. John Taft, maybe. Sounds about, like sounds about right. Um, when it was all said and done and we were getting ready to leave, Swindell had walked up to me and he signed a whole bunch of paperwork for, he signed my combat action badge. He signed, a, you know, verifying all this, that, and the other. And, you know, he got us our, our, our patches that we could, we talked about, you know, pissing contests with patches and badges. You know, he got, my soldiers were bitching about wanting to wear the SF patch. I'm like, guys, it doesn't matter. Like, the, it, it, but you know, he ended up agreeing to sign it all for it. So, you know, he, he was, he was very, you know, accommodating in that sense, but I'll never forget. He pulled me aside, um, you know, about a two weeks before we were leaving. And he looked me dead in the eye and he looked and he said to me, he said, Mark, if you want to go to assessment selection, I'll get you a slot. Just say the word. And I was blown away. That's a hell of a compliment, Mark. I, you know, I mean, it was really like, I, I just, I was like, you know, I, I don't, I didn't know what to say. Um, the fact that hell of a compliment, the fact that he had thought of me as one of his own, or at least capable enough to be one of his own was the ultimate compliment for me. Um, and you know, uh, I I took a day and I thought about it, you know, and I asked like, you know, what what is the whole process? How does it work? This, that, and the other, could I still do it in the guard? Do I need to go back to duty kind of deal and everything else? And ultimately I, I I went back to him and I told him and I, and and I turned it down and I said, sir, I'm, I'm so grateful. And I, I, can't believe you would think of me. And I explained to him, I said, look, I, I, I gotta be honest. Like, I, I, I'm torn between what I want to do with the rest of my life and this, because I was literally in love with what I was doing there. Like I, I, you know, eventually it probably ended up in me getting blown up and dying. But you know, while I was there, I was absolutely in love with the job that I had in front of me and, and I was good at it. And I, and I could do it really well. Um, but I told him, I said, look, I, I, I can't accept this even if I could do it in the garden, just, you know, do it part-time and take the school, you know, whatever it is, you know, you go to your three weeks of assessment selection, go to the Q course. I said, I don't know if I can devote the level of dedication and, and of your life that is needed to do this really well. And I don't want to disrespect that process or anybody else who's going through that process by me being not able to give it the attention it deserves. And I didn't feel like it was right for me to even accept the offer because I, there was part of me that thought that I don't know if I would ever see this all the way through to the level that these guys do. Because I didn't know if my heart was 100. In a year down the road when I'm not in Baghdad anymore, is my heart still going to be in it the same way? And I didn't want to start it and then have to walk away 
you know, that's a reflection on him. That's a reflection on every, all the other Green Berets for me to walk out of there and not do it. But uh, I, I'm sorry for taking up your time in storytelling. with No, that. no, no, it's okay. I mean, that's a hell of a compliment. And I got to ask you if you remember, do you remember who the battalion commander was from fifth group by any chance? Barry Naylor. It was Miller? Naylor, N-A-Y-L-O-R, Barry Naylor. Naylor, Okay. Cause I read the uh, I forgot I forgot the name of his book, but I I read Miller's book, the the sec def, and I think that he was in like the sec def for for Trump for like three months. I think that he was in that position at some point uh, as a fifth group battalion commander, but maybe it was a previous rotation. Uh, he was I mean he was a guy you could pick it. He was a, a dude from the I think he was from Tennessee, but he had this thick Southern drawl. And the yeah. only reason I remember his name is because the OER he wrote me with his senior reader comments uh, were so glaring that people in my state questioned whether it was real. When the oh, OER wow. got sent back, they're like, D -d 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 who, "Who?" I remember my exo said to me, "Who'd you blow to get this OER?" <laughs> and I'm like, oh, "Like it was another a great compliment." It sounds <laughs> weird, but it's a great compliment. I, I was like, "No, it's real." Like honestly, it, it, he really wrote it and signed it because I mean, he literally said uh, it was in the top ten cent top 10 percent of captains that i seen your rate to include green berets you oh know? man that's um, legit dude I, I, I listen i didn't whatever um but it was it, again it was it was that whole environment that just I, I learned to thrive well in and uh and and i learned a ton from them uh and and they molded me as an individual uh and as an officer and a leader for the rest of my career and uh, i'm eternally grateful uh for the whole experience i'm thankful that i'm you know, all in one piece for the most part, uh, you know, bumps and bruises, of course, but, you know, uh, fully intact otherwise. And, uh, you know, again, just a, just a, a, an experience that I, I wouldn't trade and couldn't trade. I said for years, if you laid out all the assignments in Iraq at the time before I got there, it said, Mark, pick one. I couldn't have picked a better one on my own. There was no yeah. way I found a better one than where I landed. So very fortuitous in that sense. Now, back to you, because okay. I had left – I want to say April 12th uh, of 06 or 05 of 06, April 12th, okay. 06. Um, and literally I remember I, I had rolled over an IED again. Oh no, I'm sorry. That, that wasn't it. Yes. Rolled over an IED um, literally three days before that. Um, three days before you left three or four days before I left. They, they, Holy shit. I, I'll never forget. Um, the, there was a, uh, um, a New York Times reporter in the green zone who wanted to come check out the ISAF brigade and um, the company commander. And I forget his name, um, but he said to me from, from 10th group, from second bat 10th group, uh, the alpha company commander he said to me, he said, why don't you take your, why don't you just take your support battalion guys and have them go pick them up, show them that they can do it alone. You know, like you, know you who that was, that was Phil Mala. I think that sounds about right. Blonde hair, muscles, cats. Yeah. Everybody had blonde hair and muscles back then. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I'm like, really, sir? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, all right. So he wants me to just go. And I remember I was so pissed that I had to do it because I didn't want to do it. And I'm like, just to get a freaking reporter. And I made every bad leader mistake you can make. Didn't take an interpreter, didn't take a map, didn't take a compass, didn't take anything. I said, guys, let's just get in the cars and go. Run to the green. Route Irish. Boom. Come on, right? boom, there and back. Right? Get there, no problems. 
on the way out, we want to leave from the same direction. Oh, they shut that gate off because the road turned black, this, that, and the other. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, they're expecting me back. How am I supposed to get back? I don't know where I'm going. So I'm speaking broken Arabic to my Iraqis. We're going back and forth trying to figure it out. They, they convinced me that they know where they're going. Of course, we get in the vehicles and start driving. And of course, you know, they're screaming at each other in the front seat, back and forth in Arabic, this, that, and the other. And I'm just trying to play a cool talk. Hey, hey you enjoying Iraq so far? How's it going? Trying to, t- you know, chat them up and everything else. Eventually, after like 15 minutes of driving in circles, they, uh, I figure out where we are. I can orient myself. I'm like, okay, I recognize this, this, and this. And, you know, I start tapping them on the shoulder, telling them which way to go. We get back on the road. We get back down around Tampa somehow. Next thing you know, we go over an underpass, come right past it. Boom, IED blows up. There's three guys on the side of the road with RPGs sitting on their shoulders, waiting to unload as soon as the vehicle stops. Thankfully, the guys that I trained, the Iraqi soldiers behind me, wasted all three of them. Uh, nice. Put the vehicle back all the way through. And I didn't even see the guys on the side of the road, to be honest with you. I only found out they were there after we got back. So I was that close to, to being, you know, uh, an angel in heaven, so to speak. But that had happened like four days before I had left. So oh, man, that's uh, crazy. Yeah. And then you guys, uh, you said April 17th, and that was five days after I left, was sort of your alive day. So tell me about that. Yeah. So you you covered this. I just wanted to hit a little bit of context for, for the listeners. You, you hit it already on, on the head as far as how violent things had, had turned. We got there in January of 2006. Uh, you mentioned the Samara Mosque bombing. That was February 22nd of 2006. And that basically ignited the civil war that, that happened in Iraq. I mean, they didn't call it that, but it basically ignited a civil war. And it, it was, you know, Baghdad. I think that year, Mark, uh, was the most deadly year for Iraqi civilians in the yep. ent- entire Iraqi war. I think it was the third deadliest for U.S. soldiers. But just to kind of give the listeners out there a little context, like it is a dead, like it was already deadly violent, but it was magnified by times 100. So so I found myself, you know, we, we'd been there for a few months and we saw it just kept escalating, escalating, escalating. And we were, um, you know, we weren't at a large forward operating base. We were actually at a, you know, it was a compound with several houses that we were adjacent to with the 101st and their Iraqi army counterparts. But, uh, but April 17th, um, this might sound weird to, to the, to the listeners, but it was an administrative day for us. You know, even though we were in combat, it was an administrative day because you got shit to do, you know, you got to do meetings. And, and for us, uh, we were, we were going to leave Apache, which is in Atomia, uh, which is a suburb of Baghdad. It's up on the northeast side, like right on the Tigris. It was the last Sunni stronghold in all of Baghdad uh, because the Shia had moved in and kicked everyone else out. But but Atomia was the last Sunni stronghold and all hell break was breaking loose in Atomia. Uh, but we had an administrative day. We were dropping someone off in the green zone for a meeting. And then we were going to hit Route Irish and go to the Baghdad International Airport and get turret upgrades. Uh, we had like those standard turrets and they were going to put the glass, yeah. the big thick glass. Yeah. Uh, and then our interpreter was going to take some time off and fly back to the States. So that was our mindset on April 17th. And uh, we dropped our guy off uh, in the green zone. So here we are. We're two gun trucks, six special forces and an interpreter almost ready to leave the green zone to jump on route Irish and my embassy issued cell phone rings 
and it's Chris, my special forces team leader. And he relayed an urgent and immediate request from the 101st and said, Hey guys, all hell is breaking loose. Uh, they need some help. And we had an agreement with the 101st. Hey, if you guys need us, we'll come, but don't call us for something stupid. If you call us, we're going to burn shit down. So if it's that call us, we'll come. Uh, and then if, you know, we had the same deal with them, like, Hey, by the way, what was Chris's last name? Chris Denham. He was like six foot six. Okay. There was a Chris McIntosh that I I worked with on a routine. No, no. Chris was a a West Point, like Ah. rocket nuclear science, science guy. Like he's brilliant, (laughs) but he's like six foot six. So Uh, couldn't miss um, But you know, we had an agreement with the hundred first. If they needed us, if we needed them, they would come to us day, night, whatever. So, you know, he calls me on the radio and says, Hey man, they need you. Uh, they had been engaged for, uh, five hours in Atomia and, uh, you know, we stopped the gun trucks and I pulled the guys around. It was one of those life and death, uh, type decisions where I felt as a leader that I didn't have to do it. I, I, I felt like I knew the answer, Mark. I knew what they were going to say, but I, I wanted to get a little buy-in from the guys. So I was like, Hey, this is what's going on. Are you guys down? Uh, they were like, hell yes, we're down. Let's do this thing. So we got in our gun trucks uh, and we we went back to uh, to Atomia. We tried to link up with the 101st guys. Um, the first place that we went to was a, a little circle, traffic circle called Antar Square. And we linked up with our Iraqi army counterparts. They were scared to death, uh, fear all over their face, um, under fire, uh, they had RPGs, PKM machine guns, AKs. This was a different level of Atomia fighter than what we were used to, Mark. You know, we were used to kind of like the the guys that did a lot of harassment fire and they'd run away or melt back into the population. But uh, the guys on April 17th were actually maneuvering uh, on, you know, U.S. forces and, and Iraqi army soldiers. So it was a whole different level of fighter. Uh, we believe, you know, some Al Qaeda folks had, had moved into Atomia because it was their last, you know, strong point. And Sadr City guys kept going in there and kidnapping dudes. You know, the whole sectarian thing was going on. So we felt like they had reinforcements for this day. Like these were no shit. You know, these guys were fighting. But uh, we linked up and uh, started getting, you know, some atmospherics, what was going on. We wanted to identify, you know, the players, uh, who was where, because, you know, obviously we didn't want to shoot up our own people, but talk to the Iraqi army guys, try to give them a little bit of confidence and inspiration that we weren't going to leave them. And and they were actually, man, they were fired up to see us because we had helped the 101st, you know, before at night. So they kind of saw shadows, but to see us in the daylight, because, you know, our vehicles look different. You know, we had steel I-beams on our bumpers. You know, our guys had beards. Like, we we just looked different. So that fired them up. We linked up with the 101st. Uh, and it was like, hey, man, like, tell me, like, where all the bad guys are. And it was like, hey, basically, the way you're looking, that's all bad guys. It was like, awesome. So uh, our team, you know, we were small. We didn't have Iraqi army soldiers that we had to deal with. We were, we were unilateral. Even though we were a small package, we carried a big punch, you know, we had a 240 machine gun and a 50 cal. So, you know, two vehicles, two gun trucks, six green berets and an interpreter. 
And once I found out where everyone was at, I basically gave my gunners a left and right. And I was like, hey, see that to your left? See that to your right? Anything in there? Kill it. Um, you know, obviously, if it's a threat, but there was no friendlies there. So uh, so we started actually maneuvering on these side streets. And I, I gave that gave the 101st time to kind of reorganize and figure out what was going on because they were basically stationary, just eating, eating RPGs and machine gun fire, gave them time to kind of figure out what was going on. And, and we just started maneuvering up this North South road, uh, kind of doing leapfrog, man, like a lethal version of leapfrog working those side streets. Um, uh, probably the first or second side street we hit, um, uh, we had some guys at close range, uh, they had kind of like, Hey, it was like the welcome party, I guess, but uh, four or five guys in a vehicle and they got out um, RPGs and all that. And our 50 gal, our 50 cal gunner ate them up at close range. And and we had a guy that was probably 110 pounds, you know, special forces guy, country boy from Texas, red hair, probably weighed 110 pounds, but he was surgical on a 50 cal and he just ate these dudes up. And I feel like that really kind of shifted the momentum for the entire fight because, you know, they'd been there for fighting back and forth and messing around for five hours. And I mean, our first few minutes, man, we'd engaged and killed a bunch of dudes. So we just kept doing that. And then we linked back up with the 101st and the Iraqi army. And then we started uh, pushing into the city of Atomia. And this is where it kind of goes into to my action. Uh, there were several times, you know, Al Qaeda, not stupid by any means. Uh, they had they had set up obstacles and key intersections and roadways to slow down our maneuverability and to increase the danger to us and our vehicles. Because, yep. you know, if they could get a stop there, then they got perfect, you know, targets of opportunity. So we had I, I realized like, man, we if we stop here, we're going to get eaten up. And we kind of stopped short. So the vehicles weren't at risk. but um that meant i i needed to jump out of the vehicle um exposed and uh and under fire and move the obstacles so we could continue pushing and just continue inflicting a lot of damage on the enemy which which we did but these obstacles was wires barrels tires trash you name it they they try to put it in the road to slow us down so i moved that shit out of the way and then we could keep keep uh, maneuvering, keep moving. And I had to do that several times um, while engaging the enemy at close range uh, for some of those engagements. So, so we just did that. What was, let me ask you, was there a point where you thought that, you know, after you, you repeat this exercise two, maybe three times, like, Hey, th- th- this isn't beneficial to us at all. Like we can't keep stop. I can't keep getting out and moving tires and trash and everything else like i mean at some point in time was there ever thought hey could i just blow right through this sort of barrier kind of deal or no it was it was enough to where it would have really messed up and got into the axles and the wheels and all of that stuff i mean they had them set up pretty good and and there were a few times where the interpreter uh god bless him you know got out and and had to help as well but we were trying to stay somewhat online even though we were you know, kind of maneuvering in our own streets, pushing, uh, it was actually pushing West, uh, toward the Tigris. And, um, you know, it just, it just stayed with the flow, uh, to continue what we were doing and, you know, we didn't have anything catastrophic. So 
so we continued doing that but we we eventually did get to a point though mark where um i i received a phone call from the trail vehicle and it was like hey d you guys are leaking fluids so bad like everywhere and i was like okay roger that and before i could even pass the message to my driver He's like, man, I lost everything. Like, I got nothing. I got no power. So our, our engine block had been shot oh. out. Wow. Um, which sucked. Because, you know, we were, man, we were just, we were kicking ass. Um, so we had to tow ourselves out of there. Uh, you know, we had our tow straps all set up and S-rolled and stuff like that. So our second vehicle was, was able to tow us out and, and able to call back to the rear. Cause we were only probably 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes away from Apache at that point. And, and they got us another vehicle ready. We were, we were starting to go black on ammo. We were starting to run out of ammo. Right. Um, so we headed back. Cause this is probably like an hour, hour and 15 minutes of just slugging it out in the streets, man, just a straight slug fest. And uh, we got back to Apache. We we swapped out vehicles. We went back, uh, did some more engagement, and we actually pushed the enemy all the way back to one of the largest Sunni mosques in Baghdad. It was Abu Hanifa. Mm-hmm. So we they kind of melted back into Abu Hanifa, dropped their arms, and and they were done fighting for the day. They'd had enough. Huh. And. Uh, you know, I want to ask you when you you talked about the momentum of battle, right? Because this is a thing, um, and I don't know if civilians know it, or maybe some people who've been in combat don't recognize it as a thing. But you know, um, the momentum of battle—you have it early, but then you start to run low on ammo. You're starting to run low on on you know fuel. Vehicles are breaking down. And everything else. Like, do you feel like you're losing momentum at any point? I felt like we lost a little momentum. Uh, right when our engine block got shot out, you know, like we had to deal with that and it was like, man, you know, damn it. I, I felt like we were, you know, we were definitely the hammer there for a bit. Um, but I think by this point, you know, the 101st, uh, and the Iraqi army had, had kind of got their feet underneath of them. So they were, they were feeling pretty good about it, but that point where we got our, our engine block shot out. Um, you know, it turned out it, it didn't change any of the momentum, I think, because, you know, the 101st and the Iraqi army were in a good place, but, but for us, yeah, definitely. Initially it was like, man, you know, we lost some momentum, uh, when we get back out, what's that going to look like? But, but once we did get that, that replacement vehicle and we did go back out, uh, things were fine. Uh, we just leaked back up and actually we brought some ammo out for the 101st as well. And, and we kind of did like a little standoff there at, at Abu Hanifa at the mosque. Uh, Cause you know, still that's a very sensitive, you know, it's their mosque and was going to, you know, kind of wondering how that might play out, but thank goodness nothing happened. And uh, you know, since no one was firing, we went back to Apache and on the way back, uh, we found out that there were some Iraqi police vehicles that had been abandoned. And uh, I believe they had some casualties as well, but, but we ended up uh, securing a couple trucks, I believe some Iraqi police vehicles that had just been abandoned because they got scared and fled so we took those uh, vehicles back to base uh, to Apache, and then we had a sister team from Taji 
that was in the green zone at the at the our company headquarters and they brought our guy back that was there doing a meeting and they said hey if you guys need some more bodies you know we could go out there together um so we called over the 101st and we actually heard that they're starting to move out now to me again so we went out for a third time we had a very very minor skirmish but at at this point we were like really hoping please let there be somebody that still wants to fight because we got four gun trucks of SF dudes and we're ready to do some damage. But, uh, but it was funny to see the look on the first group guys faces because they, they came from a very controlling environment at Taji where their battle space owner was doing like 15 dash sixes. If, you know, if, if guys fired their weapons or, if they smashed a car up, you know, trying to get through traffic. So they came from a very controlling, like rigid environment. And then to see their faces, uh, like, especially, and, and to hear what they said on the way back, or once we got back to Apache, like, holy shit, man, it looked like Fallujah out there. You know, there's vehicles on fire, there's brass everywhere. You know, it was, it was really comical to kind of hear some of their, their stories. But that's April 17th, man. And, and, and I'm very humbled uh, and, and proud and honored to, to receive the bronze star medal with Valor for, for that action. But obviously that had nothing to do with, with trying to get a medal or trying to get recognition. That was all about, you know, the love and the care that we had for our brothers from the 101st. Um, They, you know, we told them if they asked for help, we'd come help them. And we did. So so that was an honor and uh, and a privilege. And we actually had, you know, yes, I was exposed and, and under fire uh, at times, but I had two gunners, uh, the, the 240 machine gunner and the 50 cal. They were exposed the whole time, man. I mean, we didn't have those turret upgrades. So they were they were up there exposed and, and they were both awarded a Bronze Star Medal with Valor as well. So that was a very... Uh, very proud day for for us and our whole entire team that we that we were able to contribute. That's I mean, look, it's it's amazing. I think it's uh, it's it's kind of the thing that you 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 when you train, you hope that it goes as effectively as you want it to. Obviously, the enemy always gets a say, and things are you know uh, never they never go to plan, so to speak. But when the parts of it that are executed are executed well, the way they're supposed to, it's almost like validation for everything that you do on a routine basis. It's why you put all the hours in, right? It's why you yeah. sleep so hard. It's why you train so hard. It's why you, you stay in such good shape for all those reasons that when those moments come to fruition, you have, you know, uh, everything you need in front of you. Mark, I actually have five key lessons learned from that day. If you don't mind, I'd like to go ahead and share them. Five key key lessons learned from the 17 April 2006, and actually my my rotation in Baghdad. Uh, the five key: number one, calm breeds calm, panic breeds panic. Yeah. Uh, number two, control what you can control. Let go of the rest that you can't control. Control what you can: your emotions, your actions, your execution. Number three, courage is contagious. Have the courage to get into the ring because it makes it easier for others to follow you. And, and by that example, I'm talking specifically about the Iraqi army and the 101st, you know. Number four, embrace the chaos. You know, we live in an uncertain world. 
doesn't matter. You got to get after it anyway. Uh, and number five, you can't fake preparation. You have to train. You have to prepare. You don't rise to the occasion. You rise to your level of training. And, and I think that's the big ones, man, from, from that. That's like my PhD lessons learned from, from that firefight. I mean, I just think it's, you know, for, for most things, man, that's important. We just had a terrible mass shooting in uh, Allen, Texas, and and several people got killed. And, and that was a one law enforcement officer that was able to respond to that and take down that gunner, or it would have been 10 million times worse. And I think about those lessons like that, that law enforcement guy, absolute hero. I think he, he dealt with those same five things, man. I mean, he didn't have 20 officers there ready to go. Like it was him. That was it. So I just think, man, those things are so important. And I hope, you know, maybe the listeners out there get something from it. Well, and you know, again, I would, I would argue that all of those things that you um, had hinted on are more instinctive than anything else. Right. I mean, instinctively if you are can remain calm yeah this will be calm around you if you instinctively get all flustered and verklempt and and you know uh but you know falling back on your training can't fake in preparation the instinct to do what you've trained to do kicks in when it's supposed to um the idea of of controlling what you can control in a sense of you know and again, I'm dissecting this here, but I just, I say all this, say control what you control. Look at what's in front of you, hit the targets in order, you know, take what comes to you, try to see the next step ahead. I mean, all these things are things that happen in your mind necessarily more than there's a physical action that backs those things up. I, I only, I only sort of look at it through that prism because, you know, it, it, it makes sense that, you know, when, when it comes to these lessons learned, um, a lot of leaders either have it or they don't. And some of that stuff is harder to train on than others, I would say. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, so, you know, this happens on this deployment, um, you know, and you, you, I guess you finally got the taste of combat, like true combat that you were looking for at this point in time. No more, uh, hey, I didn't go on the mission or no more. I was a little disappointed. You got your full and then some um, over there. And I think you had one more deployment to Baghdad after this one, correct? Yeah, yeah. After that, like we came back, we redeployed in August of 06. So we had a we had a lot going on that rotation, man. It was busy. Yeah. Uh, I think we were probably one of the most attacked special forces compounds in all of Iraq uh, in 06 because it seemed like anything that went on in Baghdad, we got the blame for it. Uh, so we would get rocketed or mortared or whatever as punishment. But uh, but yeah. We went back again in 07 and we had the ISOF recce uh, mission. So we were doing a lot of, a hell of a lot of targeting and. Uh, That's the fun stuff. That that was a lot of fun because at that point I really learned how strategically important it's like, man, we're kind of like the puppet master. We have an action arm, you know, we have the ICTF guys and, and the ISOC. They were good. You know, I they, guess they were flipping really good, man. They were really no good. denying how good they were. Could They were extremely well-trained by us. I mean, I don't want to take all the credit, but, you know, you had a small contingent of Iraqi soldiers who wanted to be soldiers, who wanted to 
the same thing that made America, they had that same feeling about their own country. They wanted to fight for it um, and, and get rid of all the bad guys and, and at least give Iraq a hope for something different. I and mean, maybe we kind of forced that idea on them, but nonetheless, it, you know, it all, it all uh, uh, happened and, and they were good. They were very good. They, they, there was nothing those guys couldn't accomplish. Uh, they didn't need much. Once they got ready to go, they didn't need much help from us. They were more capable on their own. And and that, uh, that ISOP brigade was supposed to be the tip of the spear of, you know, Iraq doing it on their own. Right. Um, And they could have, they just needed backing and resources and money and time and, you know, all the things that we didn't want to give them Um, different conversation for a different day Uh, for your, for the rest of your career, you end up, uh, you know, I I talked earlier about you, you went to SWIX, um, you know, that's the, the special warfare center at school at Fort Bragg. Um, and you become an instructor there for the, for the latter part of your career, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did some instructor time, also did some staff time. Uh, and then I ended up retiring and, um, I, yeah, I, I retired in January of 2017. So I did a little over 26 and a half, um, did some homesteading at Bragg cause I had some personal stuff going on and, and became a single dad. So I really appreciate you know, the command and the army working with me to allow me to kind of get through that and, and raise my kids and get them through school. So, so yeah, I did some homesteading there, but, you know, try to do what I could uh, on the instructor and the staff side and then hung it up and, uh, and then started my next journey, man. Before we get to that, I just want to ask you real quick about the uh, major general Robert Frederick award. Uh, and the Larry Thorne Award. Uh, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with any of them, I'll be honest with you, until I read about it. I, I'm not that tied into the inner workings of how those awards go and everything else, but can you just give me some background on it? Yeah, so for, for the Larry Thorne Award, um, that's named after a very um, decorated, very famous Special Forces soldier that, that was missing in action. I think they finally did recover his body um, in Vietnam and bring him back, but that that award is given out annually to the best special forces operational detachment alpha in 10th group. And uh, for the only for 10th group. Yeah. For all of 10th group. So, you know, second, third, first battalion, I think now they've grown by another battalion, but, um, but yeah, so it's very prestigious and uh, we were, you know, honored and I think I have it. Yep. It's over this shoulder right here. That's the uh, that's the Larry Thorny. It's the picture of our team and all of that stuff. And then the Frederick Award is this one over here. Okay. Uh, that is an award that's you know given out once a year. I don't know if they still do it now. It, it could have changed, but uh, it's given out through all of the active duty groups. So we have five special forces active duty groups, and we have two National Guard groups. So that's given out uh, each year it was to the uh, to the top enlisted guy out of all those groups. And uh, and I was awarded that, man, another absolute privilege uh, for that. Look at you. Look at you. Uh, yeah, man. I had a great team, man. I had a great team, dude. Um, after you retire, you end up um, doing some work in D.C., right? Um Director of Security and Director of Operations at the Museum of the Bible? Yeah. I, what is that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So actually, a guy that used to work for me back in the day for these rotations that we just talked about, 06, 07, 
Uh, he went on and uh, he was part of a special mission unit in Fort Belvoir. And uh, so he was in the DC area and he ended up getting out and uh, he was hired uh, to work at the museum of the Bible as like the global director of security for all of like the overseas travel and, you know, trips to Israel and all that type of stuff. So, um, you know, I was looking for work and, you know, I was getting ready to be unemployed and um, he offered a position and he, he offered a, an opportunity to interview. So, so I interviewed for that, for that job, they were building the museum of the Bible in 2016. They actually opened it in uh, 2017, November, 2017, but you know, it's a $550 million museum, uh, 430,000 square foot. I didn't know anything about museums other than being in like maybe two my whole entire life. And I really didn't like DC, but like I said, I needed work. So, uh, so I took the job and said, Hey, I, I might not know anything about museums, but I know a thing or two about keeping people safe and keeping people alive and protecting assets. So, so it actually was a perfect fit. And I think that is another lesson learned for guys uh, maybe out there listening to the hazard ground right now uh, that might be transitioning is man, keep your options open. Don't get pigeonholed into something, you know, keep your eyes open and, and look for those opportunities. But um but yeah, I took advantage of it, man, and and did the security role for a couple of years, rolled right into operations because it's such a natural fit, especially yep. being a former team sergeant. That led to uh, some consulting work, uh, still work with a bunch of more museums when I was a consultant. And that actually uh, got me located in Dallas. Well, actually, I'm north of Dallas, Texas, but uh, in that role as a consultant, uh, moved to Texas and... Uh, as a consultant, I had an opportunity to meet the current uh, president and CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation, uh, Chris Cassidy, who has a unique background. Um, I like to joke and say that he's the classic underachiever. He's a former uh, uh, Naval Academy grad, uh, former Navy SEAL, MIT grad, and former chief NASA astronaut. Your Lord. Yeah. Right. He's such an underachiever. Uh, it's wow. funny for me to say that, but uh, so yeah, I got a chance to meet Chris Cassidy and I think he was maybe a year into the job as the CEO and, you know, obviously we're, well, he was building, I can't say we at that point, at that point, but you know, he was building the, the Medal of Honor Museum. They hadn't even broke ground or anything like that. So I had a chance to meet him. I was getting ready to give a presentation at the Texas Rangers uh, for something else. But uh, I just said, hey, Chris, man, I, I love what you guys are doing. I love this concept of this National Medal of Honor Museum. Like, I'm blown away that we don't have one. But uh, I have some lessons learned from construction phase at the Museum of the Bible and from grand opening and day-to-day -day ops. I'd like to share them with you. I wasn't trying to pitch him. I wasn't trying to get a job. I was just, I was just like fired up about the mission. And I mean, these are my heroes. Like these are Medal of Honor recipients or our nation's highest, uh, you know, award for valor. And I mean, just my heroes that, that I grew up admiring. So I shared some lessons learned and one thing led to another and we kept having conversations and he needed a good ops person. And, and he asked me, he said, Hey man, I, 
would, would you be interested in joining the team and, and doing some operations? And I was like, hell yes, I would love to join this team. So, uh, so I started work uh, February of 2022, um, chief of operations and, we ended up breaking ground for the museum March uh, 25th for Medal of Honor Day of 2022. And, and here I am uh, a year and a few months strong, uh, you know, making a lot of progress on the construction side. And man, it's just, it's such an honor and a privilege to, to have this position and, and to do the work. It, it definitely, it gives you a fire in the morning to come to work. So so that's kind of how everything started, man, was that initial meeting with Chris Cassidy. Um, now, I have seen a Medal of Honor Museum in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Is there any connection? No, there's there's no connection. Uh, that's more of a local. It's not a national. Got it. Uh, I need to go to that museum. I haven't been to that one. I've heard a bunch about it. But... I haven't been inside because it was closed when I was there. But I remember yeah. walking past it and going, hmm. So I, I not I was not aware, and then when I saw your guys' organization, like me, the wonderful, this is all connected. Um, and look, there are thousands of veterans charities designed for a variety of different things. So, oh yeah, you know, there's nothing proprietary about the veteran space. I've said that for years. So there could be yeah, a yeah. Medal of Honor Museum, and that's quite okay. Uh, even if I don't understand it, I still think it's okay. Yeah. That said, yeah. what's kind of the goal for the national? Medal of Honor Museum Foundation is it just to build a facility or w- what goes on beyond that? Well, we're still we're still fundraising, so we still need several million dollars. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that here here in a second. What folks out there might be able to do, but but we're trying right now. We're in the process of building uh, the museum, which will have a institute, a leadership institute component as part of the museum, which will be able to to do training and classes and courses for fortune 500 CEOs all the way to adults, all the way down to kids. Um, So we'll have the museum, we'll have an Institute, a leadership Institute. And then we're also going to have a monument uh, in DC that we're still trying to work through a medal of honor uh, monument. So that's probably like maybe a 2026 uh, project, but but that's kind of like the focus and is really to try to raise the national consciousness of the medal the, of honor. And the these cynic in me chuckles, like getting a medal of honor isn't enough. Now you need a monument on top of it. Ooh. <laughs> well, there's plenty. I, you know, I just heard that they're putting the global war on terror. Uh, that monument got approved. Yes, it did. Yeah. I know the president yeah. of the board uh, as a former guest. Oh, really? Yeah. I know the president and the whole thing. And uh, he's a former uh, what? He's a former guest here on the show, also a former Green Beret, Michael Rodriguez. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I knew he was a – was he a seventh group guy? Yes. Yeah. So uh, – I'll have to go back and find that episode, man. I'm connected with him, but I don't I don't know him. I would love to get a chance to meet him and talk to he, him. He is one heck of a hermano, as he likes to say. Mi hermano. He's uh, definitely Latin. I forget which which of which yeah. – anyway, regardless. Uh, but, yeah, he's uh, he's done incredible work. Um, I can't wait to go for the dedication. Uh, he's invited me to go and, uh, I'm looking oh, for- dude, that's, that's awesome. When, when it's all done, they've, they've had, listen, they, they had to go through lengthy things in Congress to even get it approved because somewhere on the books, it's written. You can't have a memorial until after 10 years that combat has officially ended. So theoretically combat ended in Iraq in 2021. 
I mean, uh, in Afghanistan, the war on terror officially, quote, ended. We know that's not the case. But uh, that said, you know, we would have been waiting till my grandkids were old enough to see this thing if they because we're still in Syria and we're still finding terrorists. I mean, you know, it's never going to end. So they you know, to- do you know, Mark, how they're doing on the fundraising side? Are, are they raising money and doing pretty they good? Are. I mean, they, they, they have, I think, last I checked, because I stay pretty tight to this. They have everything they need to get it erect. I think they're in the artist selection phase for the memorial itself. Oh, that's great. I know. I know. That's a they, got the they got the site approved. They got the OK to build it. Now it's just, you know getting it approved in site design and everything else. And, you know, I'm hopeful, you know, sooner rather than later, they get this thing uh, up and, and, and running. It's going to be a, an emotional time for a lot of us uh, when we get there. Um, yeah, for sure. At least. It will be a very, very, um, I think about it and I, I get emotional just thinking about it. You know, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it'll be a lot, it'll be, it'll be a lot, a lot of overwhelming emotions for all of us. Like any of us who go, whenever you get a chance to go, it's, you know, um, well, I, I wasn't around for the erection of the Vietnam Memorial, um, but I imagine for all those men who stood there at that wall when it was erected or still go to that wall today and deal with the range of emotions that they deal with, we'll all sort of run through a similar gamut, I, w- I would guess. So apologies for asking this, if this is too personal, but I was just curious if, if you're anything like me. As I've gotten older and, and I'm probably a little bit more risk risk averse, and and I have these feelings that that I deal with. I, I'm probably a lot more. I don't know if sentimental is the the right word, but I, I'm definitely a lot more emotional hearing the national anthem. Or you know, I noticed that you wear a bracelet, Mark. Yeah. You know, I, I wear a bracelet as well. And Memorial Day is coming, and uh, I was just wondering if you have those kind of feelings that I have. Like I, I feel like I'm a little bit more emotional. Definitely tear up on on things. I, it, it hits different. Um, yeah. For me, I, I think there's a lot of emotion at play personally at this point. You know, my, my actual career in uniform is coming to an end. Um, I, I think that plays into it. But, you know, uh, I, I think in general, I'm more emotional about it because, um, you know, when, when you look at, when you look back at how much you invested into it and, yeah. Um, how much you, you you laid it all on the line, and how much it, it it those moments you can never get back, and the people who you did it with have we've all moved on to different phases of our life, and it's it's this sort of disconnection to all of it. You know, I, I feel like if I had if there's an opportunity for me to go to the dedication with people that I serve with guys that I fought with guys from fifth group and 10th group who I know who I sat down, you know, in the chow hall with and and shared stories with, or we sat up late at night and had a beer, even though we weren't supposed to be drinking, uh, sat up late at night and had a beer, wink, wink, um, you know, with a cigar outside and just waxed about life when it was quiet for a few moments and we weren't on mission. You know, if I was with those guys and I'd walk there, I'd probably be less emotional. Um, Thinking about all those people that, I was there with thinking about all those moments where I could have, should have, would have maybe died or, or um, thinking about the Iraqis that I trained side by side, wondering where they are. Like, those are all things that I, I can't ever 
hold on to again. You know, and I think that's part of the emotion of the whole thing um, and, and understanding where it is. I'm certainly a lot more sentimental. Um, and I've got a lot more on the line now than I did back then. I was a single guy. You know, I had nothing to worry about. You know, I, I think about my my children and, and you know, uh, their future and, and, you know, what we all fought for. Is it really, <laughs> you know, any better? <laughs> yeah. Where things are, I mean, is it, it's an interesting question. I don't, I don't 100 have the answer to it. I, I would argue. I mean, I, I agree. I'm probably a lot more sentimental about it now. Um, it's I tear up a lot quicker now. But maybe part of you know part of that too is, I, and I've shared this here. You open that Pandora's box of PTSD and what you all the shit that you went through and everything else, and you know you realize how effed up you got. Um, Oh, just yeah. Put all that back together. I think there's another emotional component there that's, you know, needs to be dissected across the whole thing, if that makes sense. But yeah, uh, yeah I it's uh, I'm I am definitely more emotional. Well, definitely, I, I will say this, Mark. Man, it looks like uh, you've taken great care of yourself, man. Because it looks like you could probably do another fifteen or twenty easy, no problem, dude. Yeah, try. Thank you. But uh, <laughs> the game I play every morning when I get out of bed and I stand up is find out what hurts the most. You know, what, what's uh, going to hurt today? Is it my back? Is it my, I mean, I've had four surgeries in the last three years. Uh, is it my back? Is it my knees? Is it my shoulders? Is it just my head? Do I just want to go back to sleep? You know, uh, no, I, I keep myself in good shape, but that's because I'm vain. Uh, it's just all yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah, man. But I, I'm with you. I, 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 I'm right there with you. Um, Listen, I mean, when you try to encapsulate the amount of of literal blood, sweat, and tears you put into your career, um, and you look back on it, it feels like it's gone in an instant. You know, it's all a blink of an eye. Like, again, I just crossed 24 years. I, I just look around and go, where the fuck did time go? Where yeah, and I, I know go? you're going to be able to sympathize with me from being an officer, a former officer, and, and how the timelines work and stuff like that, but... You know, I had this greatest of times as as a special forces guy on, a, on an operational detachment alpha. You know, it was great. And then all of a sudden you become a team sergeant and then the clock starts ticking just like it does. You know, like if you're, a, you know, a company commander or, you know, battalion commander or whatever. Like when I hit team sergeant and then it was like, man, my my clock is ticking. And I would I would try to tell my guys all the time. It's like, man, every day is a privilege. Cause you know, you don't really see it as a younger guy on a team, but once you get to that team sergeant or the team leader position, it's like, man, every day is ticking and every day is a privilege because before you know it, someone else is going to be in that position doing that job. And it's just the big army has to keep rolling on. So, so yeah, man. Uh, I mean, look, think about your alive day and the day that I got off. The, I always think about the day I got off the plane coming back from Iraq in that first point, 17 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. We talk about it. It brings up the emotions. Like I, it's almost like you want to go back there and, and do it again to a certain extent. But, you know, we're almost talking two decades ago. Where the, where, where the hell did it all go? So, yeah, it goes fast, man. It goes fast. And, and look, I, I think what you're doing, any, t- any chance when it comes to the museum, any chance you get to honor, memorialize, remember, uh, and and retell the story of the war on terror and what we had to go through 
I, I always think there's a benefit. You know, we've been fortunate enough on this show to interview some survivors of Pearl Harbor and a couple of World War II vets, right? Um, that generation, that greatest generation is is down to dozens of people left, if less than that. You know, um, and who's there to tell those stories anymore about World War II? Um, we we understand it. We get it because we've lived through combat and why that's important. But is the average millennial even giving a rip about World War II anymore? No. And they shouldn't. I'm not saying they should. But, you know, there's going to come a time where our generation of those who fought in the war on terror is going to start to die off. And I'm glad there are museums like yours. There are shows like the hazard ground and everything that are, are here to hopefully keep these things going, um, you know, in perpetuity and, 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 and chronicling, you know, this, this combat, this war, this, this hell that we went through in ways that people can understand and consume for, for you know, forever. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you probably look at this the same as I do. Like, it's critically important um, for us to kind of document this. And, and I think you're, you, you're providing such a great service because this generation, you know, they're listening to a lot more things. They're listening to clips that they run across on Instagram or uh, they're listening to, to videos on uh, podcasts on YouTube and things like that. So I think it's important. And if, if just one person listens to this and they hear you talk about something, it's like, Oh man, that was a great idea. Or if someone listens to the five lessons that I, that I broke out from April 17th and, and it helps them at some point, maybe in a future conflict or, you know, as a cop or whatever, but man, I think that's valuable. And I think that's a great service that you're providing and, and, and we hope that we're going to have the same at the museum where people can come and, and be inspired uh, by these heroic tales uh, of, you know, the Medal of Honor recipients. So, so yeah, man, I think it's a, it's a great service and we need to do something to try to, you know, have some unity uh, in our country right now. We're, you know, really divided. So if we can do anything to bring people together where it's listening to Mark Zeno on Hazard Ground or, you know, coming to the Medal of Honor Museum and, and getting a little inspiration, I mean, I think, we should, we should be trying to do it, you know? Yeah, no, again, I, I agree. And uh, you guys can go to mohmuseum.org. That's M-O-H, Medal of Honor, mohmuseum.org. Uh, you could donate there if you'd like to help out. Uh, go check out the website. Um, there's a lot of great information there. Uh, you know, kind of gives you, it lists all the recipients uh, of, there's a database of all the Medal of Honor recipients. Um, and go buy some Black Rifle Coffee, Medal yeah. of Honor blend. There you uh, go. You see, I got some, uh, I got some uh, black rifle coffee. Metal I just had some blend. this morning. I had, listen, you sent me some. I'm very grateful. It's uh, yeah. it is K cups just launched the medal of honor, the national medal of honor uh, blend black rifle coffee. K cups just launched. Uh, we get a hundred percent of those proceeds. Uh, they give a hundred percent back. So um you know, those guys are great. The leadership of Black Rifle, you know, most of those guys are all former veterans. The CEO, Evan Hafer, uh, his number two guy, Matt Best. I mean, all those guys, great Americans, great patriots. Uh, Mark, I hope that maybe at some point you can get those guys on the show. They'd probably love to. to talk to you. Listen, I, I, I would welcome the opportunity um, just because now I'm an official coffee drinker of their products. So now uh, they owe me. No, I kid, but uh, again, <laughs> website. Uh, we've had plenty of Medal of Honor recipients on this show, so um, there are, you know, you could you could 
look at their names and hear their stories and then have them watch them tell it right here. So it's all, uh, it's all right here for you to see, but again, mohmuseum.org, uh, support as best you can. Um, you know, and, and, uh, we'll get to a point here eventually that the, the, the hazard ground will make a donation for you guys. So, um, we'll, we'll, appreciate we'll, that. Thank you so some, much. Some funds your way, but, uh, I love hearing your story. Um, I, I love what you're doing now. You're involved in so many things in the veteran space beyond the Medal of Honor Museum. Um, you know, it's guys like you that are where the rubber meets the road for a lot of us uh, who are continuing to stay in the fight uh, and, and keep on living. Obviously, we veterans have their own set of challenges and still everything that we're still dealing with. And, you know, uh, we still got to make sure that we're side by side and all this stuff and take care of each other. Nobody does, Nobody takes care of us better than we do. And that's sort yeah. of the charge that we have going forward. So um, best of luck, continued success. I know you and I will stay in touch. Uh, yeah. I want you to stay in touch because this has been, it's been great to get to know you a little more and hear your story. And, and I know it'll resonate a lot with the audience, but uh, you know, continued success and best of luck with the museum. Yeah. And if anybody in the audience wants to connect, I'm on all the different social media platforms. Uh, there's not very many Daryl Lutz on LinkedIn. So if you want to start there, but I'm happy to connect and, and hopefully, you know, send out some information about the foundation and uh, it's been a privilege to be here, Mark. And I'm, I'm looking forward to working with you going forward. No, absolutely. Let's continue to stay in touch again. Great things going forward. M a M O H museum.org is where to go. Medal of honor museum. And uh, you keep on keeping on Daryl. It's been great. And uh, we certainly appreciate you. And uh, as we always say, Daryl, thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Thanks brother. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.